Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space, which is a collection of the TFOS videos 884 to 897. And as always, I hope that you enjoy Tales from Outer Space 884. Pretty little death builders, outgrowing your programming. This situation is not good. That was the biggest understatement that Admiral Marsova had ever made. The news of the last were apparently changing course to head straight to Earth had nearly broken her. So far, nothing had stopped the craft firing on its targets, though they had saved many lives by evacuation. The Sol system is the least developed system in the entire Stellar fleet, she continued. It has three inhabited bodies, Earth, Luna, and Mars, and its dominant species holds no other inhabited worlds in any other system. Furthermore, the three inhabited bodies are all clustered close together, relatively speaking. The other generals and leaders in the conference took their notes grimly. Marsova pressed the button on the podium, and a projection of the stellar neighborhood around Sol appeared above her illuminating her tired face. The craft's last suspected position was marked in a bright red. Most species had red blood, so it was a good universal warning color. What we need to save the soul system is an opportunity, and uh, luckily, we have one. A curved red line sprang up between the stars and the display. As it turns out, a moon-sized spaceship consumes a lot of power, especially if it wields a planet-burning weapon. The last might want to head straight to Earth, but they can't because they need to keep stopping and refueling. Here you can see the optimum path for the craft to take based on our knowledge of it. Based on the dark space field readings, it hasn't strayed from this path. That means that there's going to enter Sol at a very particular angle. Marsova pressed another button, and the projection shifted to an overview of the craft itself. Because it takes a lot of power to move this thing, it also takes a lot of power to shift its course. And even the tiniest course change will produce a huge shift in its eventual destination. The pilots have also to be very, very mindful of their path, because the craft's gravity well is sufficient to cause major gravitational disturbances if it gets too close to natural bodies. The display shifted to an overlay of the soul system, with the cross theorized path marked in red again. The shift provoked a lot of muttering from those watching. As you've all noticed the opportunity to maximize efficiency and avoid issue with any of the bodies in system, they have to use soul's gravity well to spiral towards their targets. Marsova pointed to a particular spot in the map, and that means that they'll be entering the inner area of the system through the Hawking Strait, the section of the asteroid path that has the lowest frequency of asteroids. The Queen Admiral chittered for attention. It was a booming sound. Marsova's gaze snapped to her immediately. Your Majesty, is there a problem? Space is three-dimensional. Could they not just go over or under the asteroid belt? In theory, yes. But that would require a large correction to get Earth and Mars. And that would take an awful lot of time and energy. 
I don't doubt that the smaller ships will spread out around the belt. But the craft itself has a sacrifice its maneuverability for size and power. The Queen Admiral seemed to be satisfied by this. She reclined a little on her chair and motioned for my server to continue. Anyway, the Hawking Strait is often used by sub-light human ships to travel from the inner system to the outer system. It's the ideal place to set up an ambush. Which is the last thing they'll expect, pointed out the Lackland Chief Admiral. Mossava quirked an eyebrow up. What they will expect, Chief Admiral, is one of two things. First, they might expect a full frontal assault designed to destroy the craft. Second, they might expect the attempt at storing the craft to maximize evacuees. My proposition is that we do neither. Destroying the craft is probably not impossible without a comparative superweapon. And while we could just abandon our system... She paused. A hot flash of emotion came over her. It was a mixture of rage, sorrow, fear, and defiance. When she spoke again... It was in a voice both icy with professionalism and burning with anger. We don't want to. The subject has been discussed at length on every level, and humanity stands united. If they want Earth, they'll have to burn every single living human first. The conference went completely silent. You could have heard a hand clapping in that moment. So, uh, we came to a third option, Marsava said, feeling a little self-conscious from the way that everyone was staring at her. This one relies on information that technician Hermes gave us about the culture and psychology of the last. As Marsava detailed the human proposition for how to save Earth, she watched the faces of the allies. They seemed shocked, befuddled, doubtful, and in cases, just a tiny hopeful. A few months ago, this might have seemed like suicide, but now it seemed like drinking doozy toxin mixed with grapefruit juice. Only a human would think of it, but it might just work. Yamada sank down into her armchair with a deep groan. She'd been over the plans for the Battle of Sol a thousand times, and while it was a good plan, she wasn't wholly convinced that it would work. Of course, the alternatives were even worse. She'd rather fly into the sun than sign off on genocide. The Tokyo skyline was beautiful that night. The sky did not care that it was about to soon be ablaze, even if the people above and below it cared a great deal. Yamada watched the stars nervously. If they'd misjudged the craft's path, would her warning be the stars twinkling out as it blocked them from view? The thought made her nauseous. A buzz at the door made her jump out of her skin. She stared at the door intercom, willing her racing heart to slow. Then she stood and walked over to it, pressing the talk button. Hello, Ambassador. You have a visitor. Researcher Zetaron Dalkismanant. What the hell does Delkismanet doing on Earth, especially right now? Send her up. Yamada hurried over to her kitchen and quickly brewed two teas, one normal size, one much smaller. 
Her front door slid open neatly to reveal Dalkismanat standing there in casual clothes, holding a small bag. Dalkismanat, I say I was happy to see you, but right now, here. The door slid shut automatically after Dalkismanat, who flew over to Yamada and sat on the kitchen counter. As the foremost foreign researcher on human psychology, I thought that it made sense for me to come and stand with you in solidarity. She took a tea and sipped it politely. Thank you, fathers. You're most welcome. Well, that's a very nice gesture. It is also uh, very stupid of you, given the situation. Yamada sipped her own tea, hoping that it would calm her nerves a little. Doesn't your research indicate that we're the suicidal ones? This isn't suicidal. I've weighed the facts, and I genuinely believe that the plan will work. Earth won't burn, she paused thoughtfully. Do you not believe that'll work? Speaking completely off the record, I'm not convinced. I think it's a bit too optimistic regarding the nature of the last. Their track record is just, uh, it's just way too bloody for me to believe that'll work. Dalkismanet trilled smugly, like she knew something about the last that you might have didn't. What's that noise for? You are falling into the same trap as every first xenopsychobiology student. Define species entirely by evolutionary trends. She took a much deeper gulp of her tea before continuing. Think of the aggression on a scale of average value not a set-in-stone determiner of the species' behavior. The doozy, average one, because nothing on their homeworld can even touch them without dying a horrible death. Now they're up against something that can kill them without touching them. How have they responded? Yamada bothered the question, a memory surfaced of Ambassador Zuzina's rage during the first discussion of Hermes' information. Yes. And while we're discussing it, they're methodically burning their way through billions of people. And come to think of it, hadn't Murakai helped Brewer with his plan to stop the Unchained? They've gotten angry. They've found ways to fight back. Even they're not capable of thinking in a way that suits war. Yamada's eyes opened. Oh God, they're being aggressive. Precisely. If they didn't have the capability to adapt psychologically like that, then toxins or no toxins, they would never have made it off the homeworld. Now, consider humanity. You guys have an aggression of 16. Does that mean that your response to anything bothersome is violence? No. We might get angry, but we're taught from a young age to control our emotions and not respond to the things with violence. The meaning of what she said just hit Yamada like a train. She nearly dropped her mug. Delgismanat trilled smugly again, taking another sip of tea as she did so and making an amused bubbling sound. The last have estimated aggressive score of 17. They have strong aggressive urges because of the death world that they evolved on. But as intelligent beings, they also have the ability to move beyond those urges. They don't realize that this is an option when it comes to an alien race. Yes, but how do we convince them of that before, Earthburns? You said it yourself. Hit them with a stick until they get the message that genocide is bad. 
We just need the right stick for the job. Hell of a stick. Well, yeah, that's the issue, Dalkisman had winced. But I think we've come up with a pretty good stick, all things considered. The two of them stayed there in a comfortable silence for a few minutes, staring out of the window at the Tokyo night skyline. Dalkismanet blattered over to the windowsill and sat on it. Beautiful city you live in, Yamada. Mickey. Huh? It's the apocalypse. I think we're friends now. Call me Mickey. Hmm. Okay, Mickey. Call me Zetron. Mickey nodded. If the city's still here when this is over, I'd love to take you on a tour as a turn. I'm holding you to that. End of chapter. Tales from Outer Space 885 Black Box, written by You're Sure I'm Not a Robot The front of the ship shattered in the silence of space, the debris slamming into the ship's shields and burning until the fields themselves failed, and the wreckage was flung into chaos. The cascade of destruction continued, ripping backwards until it hit the bridge and extinguished all life on board. The carnage was flung into the darkness, almost certainly lost forever. Again, the explosions reached further back until they hit the vacuum-sealed cargo holds. The ship seemed to inhale as the hull began warping, and then it joined the hail of shattered metal, burning gas, torn bodies, and twisted equipment hurled into the dark. The eerie silence that is death in space filled the screen. Bart paused the simulation and turned to Captain Balseth of the Tricipher. That's the best I can do for now. My drones have scanned the 80% and loose wreckage and recovered maybe three. The rest I got from the Hulk sitting out there. The captain nodded as the screen returned to the twisted chunk of wreckage turning in space outside his ship. Engineer, you have answered many questions except the important one. Why did the ship explode? It is almost identical to most of our fleet, and we need to know how this happened. Bart enlarged the image. Captain, uh, that was the bridge. Everything we needed to know was in there, and all of it's gone. I can track the debris, track speeds, track rates of burning, tensile strength, track the uh, organic remains. But nothing here will tell me what the crew were doing or why we were doing it. Unless you have a way of traveling in time, then all I can do is refine the simulation that we can watch it die again. Aware that that sounded defeatist, he added, I can check the system, see how the explosion like that could have traveled through the craft, using your ship as a template. Perhaps that'll be enough. The captain seemed to sag. His scales flat and colorless, his crests waving listlessly. He looked again at the broken ship. Engineer, we haven't been entirely truthful with you. This is the third ship that we have lost. We didn't want to damage confidence in our technology if it was some simple accident of space. Some anomaly that we could explain. Now it seems that it could happen to any of us. This is why my government asks for your skills to be made available to us. You humans seem to avoid these kinds of events, and we need your insight. Bart was silent for a moment, looking around at all the familiar tech. 
the dull realities of boring, ordinary ship travel. The dullness, treasured, bled for, fought for against all odds. Taking organic life into the cold, petalous void so often that the price was forgotten. Some of the Xenos had been out here for thousands of years, treating it like a playground. Captain, uh, we don't avoid them. Our expansion into space, our future out here has been paid for in blood. From the moment we tried to fly into our homeworld, we have failed many, many times. We try to not repeat our mistakes, is all. Captain Paulseth seemed to take it badly. Your people are all over space. You charge us ridiculous amounts of wealth to maintain our ships. Are you telling me it's a lie? Bart shook his head. Captain, a decent engineer is cheaper than a new ship every time something goes wrong. What I mean is that if this was a human-built ship, I would have a lot more information. I'd be putting out the black boxes and checking every decision the crew made for the last month. Every data stream from every system on board. Your ships don't have that, so I can only go on the wreckage after the event. What is this black box technology? Why do I not have it? How does it save your ships? I want it on my ship immediately! The captain was practically hissing at him by now. Bond put his hands up. Captain, I'll be happy to install it. I don't know why so few species are willing to use it, but it doesn't save your ship. With luck, it saves the next one. It records everything, and when something happens, its only job is to survive so that we can find out what went wrong. Then we analyze it and change our designs, or ground the ships, or find mistakes the crew made. Whichever applies. Mostly, it's a mix of all of them. But it doesn't save the ship. It's the voices of the dead, and we listen carefully. Borseth tried to work it out. It was an alien to his concept of the universe. You let ships die and then study the corpses. This is why so few Xenos had proper safety systems. Everything had always worked, so they always would. Until they didn't. Bart sighed. Captain, we treat our ships as a fleet. A failure in one is a risk to all. If something happens to one of us, we all need to know what happened. We don't like mysteries. Your ships sail around out here as if nothing can ever go wrong, just because mostly it doesn't. Now you have three dead ships and no information. The captain gave up. Just do it. Put whatever the system is on my ship. I'll contact my government and issue my recommendations to fit it to all of our ships. I'll need you to testify on this before we lose any more crew to this, uh, problem. The XCC issued a charitable appeal with a large cash bonus attached to fit the black boxes under the 200 ships of similar design. Bart finished his simulations and passed them back to Intel, but nothing useful was found. Now, it was only a question of when something else went wrong. A morbid waiting that set the Xeno fleet on edge. Many more minor mistakes were being made as the crews tried to accept that the strange human technology 
that would probably be the only thing that survived their destruction. Bart has been back on the Ishmael for three weeks, waiting for the call that he knew was coming. Every ship had been wired up in a hurry. Really basic stuff. If it worked, well, maybe the Xenos would see the point to invest properly. XCC was grinning like a fecking child over the prospect, regardless of the death toll. He was used to the cynicism that sat quietly behind many of humanity's good works, but this felt a little darker than most. The call came. Engineer to bridge, bring a bag. It took some time to reach the Tri-Cipher and reunite with Captain Borseth. The atmosphere was grim as it trailed another wreck. Another sister ship lost to these mysterious accidents. The captain put out a limb and welcomed the engineer back. Thank you, Bart. Uh, your captain tells me you've been kept busy. I wanted you because you've seen this before. From your previous work, I can tell that this is exactly the same issue. I have tracked the debris and it matches all the same criteria. We are waiting for you to recover the human technology and find out what happened. A little later, they were back in engineering. Captain, what was she called? He asked as they looked at the scans. The captain looked grim. She was the sense secret. I knew its captain and crew well. Solid, careful, and experienced. Nothing like this could have happened slowly. It must have been quick. They didn't even send out a distress call. One of your devices alerted us. The engineer nodded. He had set vacuum alert beacons on some of the places that had taken early damage, hoping it might get help faster. At least, it had helped the recovery. He looked closely at the spinning hulk. I'll suit up and see what I can find. Hopefully, it won't take long. It took a long week. A week of cutting, bending, and burning. The black boxes were set in three places on the ship and buried deep and strong. He didn't want to start any kind of analysis without all of them, or at least most of them. Bart wasn't too happy about all the sweating heavy work. He preferred drones or other people to do the heavy lifting. Pointless on this project. So many variables made programming useless, and he'd spend longer shouting and explaining to his Xena crew. Anyway, they were all pretty emotional about the ship, and he was aware that this was a graveyard for them. Having a human doing it seemed to be helping them in some strange way. Finally, he pried the black box from the bridge substructure. Captain, I have it. Coming on board now. He looked at the burned metal and the torn fabric now open to space. He bowed his head. All right, boys. I'll take it from here. I'll make a damn sure that it doesn't happen again. He didn't believe in ghosts, but he was never quite sure that they cared about what he believed. They aren't black, was the first remark from the captain. Bart grinned briefly. Hi, Captain. Imagine chasing a black object in space, or rather, a lot of burning. They are as bright as we can make them. The paint took generations to develop. Black boxes are very old technology for us, and the name stuck. It sounds better than luminous orange boxes, anyway. It doesn't burn, 
Shit's dirt and is visible on every spectrum that we use. The captain moved to touch one of them, hesitated, and withdrew his talons. Come to my quarters when you have news. Good luck. Bart eventually had to seal the door to engineering. Too many Xenos coming to look at the mysterious tech now buried in their ships. Holders of dark secrets. He didn't need the distraction. He wired all the boxes up and began downloading the data, running it directly into its existing intel. The dead ship began telling him its story. Over and over he ran the records. The crew was without fault as far as he could tell. No odd orders, no experimental procedures. Solid, unimaginative Xenos. The best kind of crew for this data. Finally, he found a small anomaly. Nothing apparently dangerous, just one that seemed to escalate until the final explosion. He tried to match it against other lost ships and, uh, as far as he could see, it was consistent. All he really had to go on was a gut feeding and an increase in parts ordered. It was going to take hours to rerun the simulations to find out. There was never enough data, but he needed to talk to the captain. He found the captain playing with some strange creature, a sort of bat-like furry thing about two hands high. He stopped and the animal flew onto the perch peacefully. Captain? Hello, Bart. Uh, we heard all about your canine alliance and thought that we would try it ourselves. We call them Numenias. We bred them in caves a long time ago as bug hunters. They increase morale on the long trips, the captain paused. And on days like this, what have you found? Bart couldn't resist walking over to the creature and peering at it. Is it a predator? Can it talk? The creature's tiny eyes studied him and then went, yip. The captain laughed. Not unless you're a bug. It's not much for talking, but it lets you know if it's unhappy. Bart nodded again. So like our cats. He dismissed the creature and brought up his scan. I have questions. He put his intel onto the screen, focusing on a small data point. Captain, why were they buying so many light bulbs? The captain looked quizzical. What is a light bulb? The engineer pointed at the order data. Light bulbs are just what we call light fittings. They are practically immortal and have been for generations. So why are your ships buying so many? And why was it escalating? Right up until the end where they were raising them in mass. The captain remembered something and pulled up his own records. We've been having similar issues. I've needed to replace several conduits. Nothing important. Not even engineering. Any of the crew can pull out those circuits and put into recycling and just pick up a new one from Cargo Bay. We carry a few hundred that usually last a lifetime of the ship. Okay. So, uh, what we have is spreading circuit failure on your ships, apparently including this one. Leave that with me and I'll get back to you. He saw concern on the captain's face. Don't worry, I won't be long. I'm just going to map out the circuits. I've never heard of lightning doing any damage. It's a low power system, certainly not powerful enough to blow up a ship. I just need more data. Several hours later, and Bart had tracked everything marked on his scans as 3E. The boxes told him that the heavily used corridors and rooms fell first. Then the crew quarters, 
and finally the storage and cargo. It was a map of crew activity, each one leading to a break in the circuit. Some of the circuits had just been replaced, some upgraded by replacing the break with more powerful versions. He sniffed at that. No attempt to solve the issue had been made. The only place not reporting changes was the far end of the ship. Round zero for the explosion. No foot traffic, no changes in the lighting. This was a dead end. He went back to the captain. Sir, the lighting doesn't seem to play an important role. I'm still consolidating the data. You said you knew the wrecked ship. Had anything new been introduced onto the ship? Some new equipment? Crew? Anything? From the corner came a quiet yip. Bart frowned. Sir, when did you start introducing your pets on ships? Tell me about them. Captain Bolseth made a warbling sound as the creature leapt from its perch and flew to his shoulder, his wing flashing brightly. Bart raised his eyes in surprise. Sir, does that thing take batteries? The captain just petted the creature. No, Bart, it's how they hunt. Well, how they hunted. The light draws in and confuses insects on our home world, and they eat them. They also groom the likes of us, when they can be bothered. Now we keep them because they are pretty, and they keep us because we feed them. This time, Bart laughed. I'm familiar with the dynamic. There is a lot of discussion about bringing our cats into space. The smile faded. Although I'm not too sure the two species should meet. Imagine the diplomats trying to sort out the literal catfight. Or the smug house mocky eating the captain's pet. He was intrigued, though. So how do they generate the light? And how do they store it? The captain shrugged. Some bioluminescent bacteria they evolved within the caves. They get heat and some weird sugars from the wings. And then the bugs excrete light when the Numenio flaps its wings. Why? The answer hit Bart with a certainty that he could not deny. You take bacteria into space for the first time, it thinks it's heaven. Lots of warm spaces, lots of mutations. Oh, look, here's a nice sunny spot I've discovered and I can eat wiring. Perfect. I multiply until someone wants me to light up. So I do and fry the wiring. That's fine, there's plenty more, and anyway, someone will be along shortly to replace it. And here's the spot where no one ever wants me to light up. So I just grow and grow. Then there's a trigger. Something tells me to light up. And I do. Crap! Captain, I need you to get the men into the life pods and let me cut the power immediately. What happened out there is happening here and I don't know how long we have. Don't hit the emergency lights. Just come and tell everyone to walk slowly to the life pods and be ready for release. When Captain Balseth had looked for a human engineer, he'd been told that there might be a time when you just shut up and listen. Some captains said that that was true with any humans, but if you saw a human engineer running, you just ran with them. He stared at Bart. Permission granted. You can explain later. He picked up the comms and began making a call he, like every other captain ever, dreaded. All crew, abandon ship. All crew, abandon ship. Move softly to the life pods and prepare for release. Move it, people. This is not a drill. 
he could see the engineer trying to run carefully back to his department. It would have been funny, except for what it told him about their situation. Bart ran as softly as he could, aware that any sudden signal could trigger a catastrophe. He reached engineering and began hitting the close down on every system and ran to his own life pod. He calmed the captain, Sir, I'm in the pod. Call it when you can. The pods fell away, taking the crew into clear space. Unfortunately, that resonated across the ship, triggering the thick layer of bacteria that had been growing throughout the hull. Thousands, millions of years of evolution told it now was the time. The captain watched his ship disintegrate in front of him. It was less exciting than the engineer's simulations, but it played out the same. The front of the ship exploded and the lines of fire ripped through the hull, crushing the ship. This time, there were no bodies. The bridge ripped apart, but then the fire started to die down. The engineer's actions to kill the power had prevented much of the dramatic destruction, but he could see that the ship would never fly again. Many hours of waiting around, then an unremarkable rescue and several hours of reports and warnings had kept Bart and the captain busy. Every ship in the fleet was busy evacuating and filling the hulls with antibacterial compounds. Everyone was grounded, required to land on a quarantine orbital and subjected to decontamination. All pets were now banned until further research was completed. After some rank and attitude demands, the captain and the engineer were currently quarantined in the bar. The captain nodded as the engineer sat down. Chief, thanks for saving my crew. I imagine the XCC had a lot to say. The engineer picked up a glass and drank with gratitude. I, I never show up. There is an emergency program to check our own ships and a thousand more looking for the black box systems to be fitted. He refilled his glass and raised it to the captain. You saved more than your crew today. You might be saving your people for generations to come. I'm glad you called me. Bart dragged his bag back through to the Ishmael, nodding to the crew as he went. The captain was waiting for him at the door to engineering. Bart, uh, I hear you're a rich man now. Uh, another new industry for us. Well, uh, for you anyway. Good to have you back. Uh, I was afraid you'd arrive in a pleasure ship, surrounded by uh, nubile young Zenos. Bart sniffed, something in his Scottish soul, deeply offended. Captain, I'm not looking for such things. I may have bought a few special bottles with me, if you're interested in a dram or two. Well, Chief, how could I say no to that? What was the problem anyway? Bart sniffed. Ugh, just bugs. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 886. Story number one. The Passenger, written by Ogosh. We were three galactic standard weeks into our five-week journey when they attacked my ship. Adrenic pirates, foul-tempered, militant, huge tripedal aliens with a penchant for murder and slavery. They descend from a Class seven rough world, and as such are most likely the most naturally gifted species recognized by the Galactic Council in terms of sheer physical prowess. 
If an adrenaline pirating frigate drops out of subspace and you aren't alert enough to get out of EMP range before they shut down your ship's nav systems, it was considered certain doom for you, your crew, and any god's forsaken souls on board. That is, until I met a human. At this point in time, I'd been captaining a transport shuttles through Zone 6 space for roughly 13 GS cycles. I knew the routes well enough that I would shave one and a half days off the journey by avoiding unnecessary checkpoints and gravity-boosting around stars. In hindsight, it was this formulaic attitude that let them get the drop on us. Other than the fate that awaited us, the only unusual thing about our journey was one of the passengers. It described itself as human. It was bipedal, mostly furless alien with pinkish epidermis and a thick patch of light golden hair on top of its head. It was about a head or two taller than most of the crew, and stayed in its quarters for the whole journey, reading. On its boarding form, its stated reason for travel was going home. I did get a chance to speak to it once, a few days before the attack. It was very polite, even complimenting me on the work that I put into polishing my shell. But I digress. When the Andronic attacked, they did so with the same tactics that I had read about. They dropped out of subspace within two GSAU, quickly glassed our nav computers with a focused EMP burst, then overrode our mechanical controls to keep us still long enough to board, and to keep us from using the escape pods. It was at this point I commanded the security crew to stand down. Fighting would only get us killed anyway. They rounded up everyone on board and brought them to the auditorium. I knew what would happen next. I had read that the Adrenic avoid large-scale combat, preferring the individual strength of each warrior. When an especially burly Adrenic stepped into the center presentation area, it was to challenge our own warriors to a duel. The pirate stated its terms. If our champion won, they would leave empty-handed, the crew and passengers unarmed. But if they won, the champion would be killed, their possessions taken, and our lives sold into slavery. As the ship's captain, I was, by default, the warrior they sought. But as a Lumi from a Class One garden world, I stood no chance against a Class Seven rough world Adronic. It stood three times taller than me. It could pick me up and throw me without much strain. I knew I would die there. But as I stepped forward to approach the stage, a hand pulled me back by my shoulder, and the human stepped past me. The human stood opposite the Adrenic warrior, surrounded on all sides by the pirate entourage. They jeered loudly and waved their weapons while the passengers cowered at the side of the room. I felt shame that I had let one of them, one of my passengers, stand in a duel in my place. I was intensely more ashamed at how relieved I felt. Two of the pirates carried a large black box onto the stage and placed it beside their champion. He explained that the box read the vocal patterns of the speaker in the room and could tell with 100% accuracy if they were lying. To demonstrate, he spoke into the device, saying that he was merciful and treated his slaves like family. The device, in turn, screeched a harsh sound that emitted a red glow. 
The pirates laughed. As it turns out, the Adrenink have a pre-battle ritual where they loudly brag about how strong they are to their opponents. I assume to intimidate them. After explaining what the device did, the pirates around the stage slowly stopped making noises and allowed the champion to begin his bust. I am Goshak Dadar of the Clan Frosk, first son of War Chief Dadar, slayer of sixteen champions, seal dealer of seven ships, raider of three worlds. I have lived my entire life on a world your council calls dangerous to inhabit. And not only have I survived, I have thrived. I have trained my body under 1.4 times galactic standard gravity to strengthen my muscles into weapons of battle. I am undefeated against the enemies of the Adrenach. The pirates surrounded the stage erupted in a new roar of pride and bluster, driving the passengers deeper against the walls. My heart sank. 1.4. That kind of gravity would crush Lumi, and this thing exercised in it. I watched the lie-detecting device throughout the champions, almost. It never once alerted to a lie. We were... Doomed. What's worse, the human looked almost bored. By the sea gods, it was dim-witted. We're going to be sold into slavery. When the human took a step forward, the pirates reacted by hushing themselves, chuckling under the breath at what this puny alien would say in defense. I am Graham Taylor. I was born and raised on Earth. A class 12 death world where the gravity is 1.6 times galactic standard. Every eye turned to the black box, waiting for it to sound off an alarm. When it didn't, the room went silent. The pirates left without another word after that, and we went on our way shortly after. Officially, my crew was able to defeat the Adrenic champion in single combat to escape capture. Unofficially, we got very, very, very lucky that we had a creature on board scarier than a pirate, quietly reading in his rumor. End of story. Story number two. The Man with the Piston Arms, written by Guncaster. You'll find a lot of weirdos in the private military sector. Specialists that over-specialized to the point of obsession and mania, who drastically modified their bodies to suit their specializations. Street samurai, fire support specialists with full flight capability and actual gunship weapons just strapped to the limbs. Cybermancers with an army of drones at the beck and call. In that sort of environment, legends come to life. During my last deployment, I met one of these legends. It was an expedition to scrap fields, an exploration and salvage mission. We were supposed to protect the techies while they ran some tests, help them grab whatever working tech we find, and get out before the Acaso Industries drone patrols stumble upon us. So there's me, the vet called Hadzi, and Piston Arms, as we came to call him. Don't give us a preferred name, so we went with that. 
Me and Hansie blended in just fine with all the tech scrap in the fields with our Type 5 body mod managers. But Piston Arms either had one of those fancy biogel mods to cover his chrome, or he legitimately still had his real head and torso. The guy looked like he would expect perfect physical condition, but the years showed. White hair, wrinkles, leathery skin and all, was probably older than Hansy. Talked with a really thick accent, for some reason. Probably from one of the Terran-born bloodlines. Now, here comes the reason I called him Pistol Arms. The old man had his huge body, literally a walking tank. Shoulder-mounted MGs, little handles that he could hold onto. Fat, freaking chunky plates of solid metal armor. The guy had a mass negator on 24-7, just so he wouldn't sink into the ground. Under the huge chassis, he had a pair of smaller arms for normal manipulation, and the eponymous piston arms. Giant things, thick enough to carry blast shields on the forearms. Oh, and he did have those, the madman. We figured the pistons were pile bunkers with how popular they'd gotten lately. I wasn't necessarily wrong, but, uh, well, the expedition went a bit awry. One thing led to another, and we got cornered by one of the defective bioconstructs that got dumped in the scrap fields way back in the day. Huge thing. Looked like it was implanted with some outdated cybernetics, too. Grab the tackies and take them to the transport, the old man said. I'll deal with it, he said, with thick things standing there, twitching. We didn't exactly want to see what one of those things could do, even damaged. So me and Hansy started packing up our kit and grabbing the drones while we covered the techies' retreat. As I was running back to the transport, I saw everything. Perks of literally having eyes in the back of your head, you know. Piston Arms actually lifted his arms for the first time during the expedition, and I heard a noise those pistons made when they revved a back. Junk! The cylinders went as he released their locks, the near-solid chunks of metal shaking the ground. The thing charged, and the old man got pushed back about half an inch. He had disengaged his mass negator and fired a good twenty anchors into the ground, the anchors widening after they dug in to stop him from sinking. The metal strained, but held. So did the old man. He held the head of the near nine-foot beast in his huge piston arms. As I was opening up the transport to prepare it for his boarding, I picked up a data broadcast. It opened in the corner of my HUD. It was a live stream from the perspective of old pistol arms, and the chat room seemed to be bursting with activity, mostly spam and silly memes, as usual. I heard him shout, his voice filled with joy. This construct is very threatening, so we must deal with it. Welcome to the Hydraulic Press Channel. Sure enough, when I checked the stream ID, it did say Hydraulic Press Channel. The guy spent half his pay buying his stimulants later that week. All in all, one of the more normal specialists I've worked with. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 887. Story number one. Shame. Written by Arthas. Humanity shook the galactic stage. Not military-wise, 
That uh, wouldn't make much sense for a minor race like that. No, they took our culture and pointed out that its metaphorical genitals were hanging out. That is to say, the humans introduced us to shame. You see, we didn't have the concept of clothing before the humans came. Sure, protective armor for battle. But not just to cover us. Our environments were varied, but we didn't live in the uncomfortable places. So they pointed out how quite literal genitals were hanging out. Which I played off as nonsense. But it ached at the back of my mind. Everyone could see. Surely, if I were to wear a simple robe, for warmth of course, I would have the side effect of making myself a little more modest. You can imagine my surprise when the next day, all of my people had the same idea. Now the races followed shortly after. I thought the humans were content with that, and that they were only uncomfortable with nudity, as makes sense. Oh, how wrong I was. You see, I became the ambassador to the humans, since I was one of the first to adopt their cultural modesty. In my work, I met a group of smaller humans, female, about 15 human years old. They asked me wise questions like, Holy crap you smell! When was the last time you washed that thing? And, Oh, what brand are those bed sheets? So I met a human tailor, based inside his cozy home. He told me that he wouldn't deal with me until I washed up. Of course, I had no idea what he meant at the time, so I asked. He was so shocked. He took me to his own bathroom and introduced me to one of humanity's most wonderful inventions, the shower. He then fitted me for clothing, promising that I would look on fleek, which I assumed to be mimicking the fashion on a colony of theirs, perhaps. Oh yes, I forgot to mention fashion. With what I learned and brought back home, fashion caught on like wildfire. Everywhere you went, human designers had taken root. Then came the hairstylists. They took me, as at that point I was considered at the forefront of fashion, since I had brought it to my people, and styled my quills, gave them color and pointed them to make me look younger, more virile, as my hairstylist put it. Wait, um, you want me to look more virile? Why would I want that if I'm wearing clothes to hide my genitals? I asked. She laughed. Honey, the whole point is that you want him to wonder, not see. It adds to the mystique, babe. Oh, and if you're wearing clothes just to hide, you're doing it wrong. Let me introduce you to my friend. Oh gosh, she's gonna love you. And with that exchange, I started wearing flashier fashion, drawing more attention. But that doesn't lead to where we are today. Because when I met their soldiers, I learned new forms of shame. They came on goodwill missions, establishing bases in our systems. We were a fairly warless galaxy, aside from small conflicts. When they saw our weapon stockpile, which was absolutely larger than theirs, they laughed at the flaws. They made us feel shame about our unlocked doors, which... In hindsight, was clearly a bad idea. When they saw our planetary defense systems, they laughed at our metaphorical unlocked doors, told us every way that they would have exploited it. And so we felt shame, and made ourselves stronger so that they would no longer laugh. 
The galactic state shook again when we were invaded. I know what you're thinking. No, it wasn't the humans. We were pretty good friends. It was intergalactic invaders. They were too strong and ended up crushing us. The shame brought on by our defeat let us survive far longer than we expected. But we still fell. We never could see what our invaders looked like or hear their name, always staying on board their massive black ships. We only saw machines as foot soldiers, none of their race. And so we gathered today, my race, humans, and all of the galaxy's leaders packed into one room to discuss surrender. A group of their robot soldiers came into the room, pointing their arm-mounted weapons to the ground and aiming our attention to the door. Into the room slid a slug-like creature, pink, fleshy, covered in pus yellow warts. It opened what I assumed to be its mouth to speak, Spittle splashing from its mouth as the words came out. Welcome all to the Gagan Empire. You will be, the invader started, but was instantly cut off by laughter. Admiral Malcolm, an oldie human, white hair and wrinkled face. I've never seen him break composure before, until now. Are you telling me that we've been beaten by the Kujigal Empire? He laughed even harder. Why is that one... It interrupted again. Oh, God, its mouth looks like a cloaca. I'm gonna throw up if I see it talk anymore. The human president, Martha Oswald, said, turning to the side to Ratch. Why, yes, it is a cloaca. Now, oh, if I may return to the matter at hand, it interrupted again. <laughs> You're telling me you'd crap from the same mouth you talk from? <laughs> Admiral Malcolm said, in between bursts of laughter. What is the... It started to raise its voice. However, it raised in pitch exponentially as it did so. So, it was interrupted again. I started to laugh. Admittedly, it was pretty funny. Hey, goo jiggle, you might want to get those nasty yellow lumps checked out. Someone from behind jeered. I didn't see who it was, but it wasn't human... Hey, those are my fertility nodules. Each is... It interrupted again. You're coated with dicks. Oh my god. <laughs> Not this. Stop this. You get the picture. After two hours of what the humans called a roast, the Gugugan left the room. Head, although, and after the first hour, I'm pretty sure it started to cry. Later on, we found out that they broadcast the surrender to the entire Empire. We expected retaliation, of course, but none came. The ships just stayed in space where they were, for months, actually. We sent transmissions asking for what happened and received no response. Until a year after surrender, we finally received our response. Just leave me alone. I just was going to work in the comm station, but uh, I'm just going to be in my room for a while instead. So, that's how we shamed the invaders into leaving. Thank humanity for shame. End of story. Story number two. Everything's a nail. Written by Hidden Fox. Every race brings something new. Something unique to the intergalactic table. The Zahara brought their unique knowledge of faster-than-light travel, 
the Kutcher brought their mastery of cuisine and flavor. But humans, humans brought the strangest thing. You see, when we first met the humans, nothing in particular stood out. They weren't particularly better at anything. Their art wasn't as good as the Winthian. Their technology was nothing compared to the complexity of the Talan. The humans didn't bring a skill. They brought a single concept. They brought a phrase. They brought every tool is a hammer. It's an odd phrase. Quite simply, what it means is that every tool can be used as a hammer. From calipers to crowbars, they are hammers. That's not the issue with the phrase. Of course, every tool can be used as a hammer, but why would you? What the phrase meant was something else completely. For humans, not only is every tool a hammer, everything is a tool. Why get a glass cutter when you can use a rock? Why create anti-gravity technology when you have rockets? Why have one powerful computer when you could just use four weak ones? Why use poison if you have a gun? Why use a gun when you have chemical weapons? Why use troops if you have a platter cracker? Not only is everything a tool, so is everyone. And nothing can be scarier than the concept of a living human tool. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 888 Apes in the Mud, written by Ias Welcome, Chief Scientist Krakrin. Thank you for accepting our invitation. We gathered here today to talk about the complaint against Major Miller. Your accusations are really serious, and before we officially register your report, we want to make sure that everybody fully understands exactly what happened. Chief Scientist Krikrin bowed his head in greeting towards the two high officials across the table, trying to keep calm. Greetings, Admiral Skrilla, Captain O'Neill. I am aware that my report is very, uh, blunt, but, uh, I stand by my accusations, and I am willing to explain to you any issues you may have encountered with my report. I must say from the start that if this meeting's scope is to cover up this outrageous behavior of Major Miller, then I will not comply. With this, the little scientist puffed up and stared defiantly at the human captain. The human smiled and gently waved both of its hands in denial. No, 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 it's nothing like that, Doctor. It's the first time you collaborated with a human team. And Admiral Skrilla asked me to participate in this meeting in order to see if I might explain some of the actions of Major Miller that may not seem so justified to you. So your report may be accurate as possible. It is my job to clear up any misunderstandings that inevitably appear in cases when different species try and work together. Now, I want you to know that I did not discuss anything with the Major before this meeting regarding this issue. I only read your complaint, and, as we mentioned before, it is quite serious. You used words like sabotage of mission, incompetence, misuse of authority, cowardice, paranoia, and even assault on your own person and fellow scientists. Clearly, something really wrong happened, and I want to make sure that nothing like this ever happens again. 
In order for us to get the full picture here, could you tell us in your own words what exactly happened? Fine, grumbled the scientist, not entirely convinced about the human captain's impartiality. We were orbiting planet SR-695887. Our scan showed that it was certainly capable of sustaining life. But the atmosphere, even if breathable, is very dense. Kilometers thick clouds constantly cover the entire planet. So many further investigations had to be made from the ground. I was assigned to lead the team that first landed on SR-395887. My role, besides a leader, was that of biologist. I was supposed to look for life forms. The team also had one geologist and one botanist, Major Miller, and another two human marines were assigned to the security team. The last member of our team was the pilot of the shuttle. We landed without incident somewhere in the northern hemisphere of the planet, where our scans indicated the largest landmass, tolerable temperatures, and breathable atmosphere. We landed in a small clearing surrounded by a forest. After touchdown, we did the preliminary scan with the shuttle sensors, but with the clouds above were replaced with thick mist on the ground. This, and the trees around, limited the sensor range to about 300 meters. In the scanned area, we did not detect anything out of place. Only trees, plants, and very small life, like insects and birds. The security team exited the shuttle first, followed by the science team. The pilot remained in his controls and continued to scan the surrounding area, because of the reduced visibility on the ground. Of only about 15 to 20 meters, Major Miller suggested that we keep our preliminary investigation of the planet inside the area covered by the shuttle sensors. Keep in mind that I agreed to this request. The planet was teeming with life. My fellow scientists were very excited, myself included. We all began to collect samples, minerals, plants, insects. Not even five minutes after we entered the forest, and no more than a hundred meters from the shuttle, Major Miller unexpectedly grabbed me, and he told us to stop, to not move. We all froze in place, thinking that he detected some threat of some kind. I asked him what was wrong, and he told me to keep quiet and don't move. Then he told us all to get down, to crouch as close to the ground as possible. He then checked with the pilot if anything changed on the shuttle sensors. The pilot answered that the scans didn't show anything different. Miller then reiterated his order for everyone not to move and stay down. He slowly pushed me behind him, signaling me again to stay still, and very carefully slowly advanced two or three more meters. He stopped at a small patch on the ground that was covered with leaves. He moved some leaves around, stopped, and cursed. This is where Major Miller's behavior stopped making any sense. The leaves were probably gathered in a small depression in the ground because Miller reached down into the leaves and took a stick from a small depression. He then slowly got to us and told me that we need to get back to the shuttle as soon as possible. That this was a dangerous area. Naturally, I demanded an explanation. What was wrong? What did he see? He did not answer me, just showed me the stick he picked up and threw it to one of the marines and told him to uh, bag it. 
Mella told us all to get back to the ship quickly and quietly. And on that exact way we came in. I was outraged. I expressed my refusal to Major Miller. There was so much work to be done, so many samples to collect. You can't scrap a mission just because one member has a fear of sticks. Oh, whatever was wrong with him? We were there to learn about the planet, damn it, to find out if there was intelligent life on it, and so many more things. He shushed me, told me that I should consider the mission accomplished. He said that it was his prerogative to abort the mission if he perceived any threat, and ordered us to get to the shuttle now. He claimed that we were in a dangerous zone, that there was definitely an intelligent race around, probably advanced enough that it could pose a danger to us. He said that we should return with more security and diplomats. Again, I refused to demand probe. He just sighed and told me, didn't you see the stick? I told him he was delusional and tried to move past him and get on with my job. That is when Miller grabbed me. Your species is larger than us, almost three times larger, so I was powerless to escape from his grasp. So I very clearly and loudly asked him to release me immediately. He just put a hand over my mouth and silenced me, then ordered the two other marines to uh, <laughs> grab the little guys and bug out to the shuttle. The marines complied, and the whole team was forcefully loaded into the shuttle. By this time, I was beyond fury, but I was also scared. For the safety of my colleagues, of course. I stated to Major Miller that I disagreed with his decision, and that I would submit a formal complaint. The very one we are here to discuss. And then I refused to interact with him anymore, so not to aggravate him further. I locked myself and my two scientist colleagues into one cabin. I feared that in his paranoia, he would harm us. It was the first time I'd ever worked with humans, and I admit that I did not know how far this abnormal behavior would go, or what it cost it. So, that is the whole story. As short as the mission itself was, thanks to Major Miller. With this, Chief Scientist Krykren took a sip of water from the glass in front of him, telling the whole story got him hot and hangry all over. Admiral Skrilla looked troubled, as he should. Meanwhile, Captain O'Neill just looked thoughtful. I think I know what happened, he said. He pressed on the comm button in front of him and asked to be relayed to Major Miller's comm bead. When he got communication, he spoke into the comm using the speaker mode so that both Admiral and the Chief Scientist could hear. Major Muller, Captain O'Neill here. Uh, I was looking over the report regarding the mission on the planet SR-395-887, and you seem to have gotten all worked up about some stick. It was a panji stick, sir, sharpened in one cut and uh, dirty. I thought as much. Uh, thank you, Major. I'm just sorry that Mr. Krykren didn't want to listen to my explanation once we were back in the shuttle. It's okay, I'll talk to him and try and explain. Uh, that'll be all for now. As soon as the comm line closed, Chief Scientist Krykren exploded. You see, he got paranoid about a stick and does not even deny it. Calm down, Mr. Krykren. Let me explain. 
Your species is the oldest sapient species that we know of. You guys are so more advanced than anyone. The last real wars you were forced to fight were so long ago that they were almost myths. Your weapons are battle cruisers or even entire space stations. And if you really need something more uh, hands-on, you have battle mechs. Meanwhile, we discovered FTL like ten years ago. Compared to you, we are apes, fighting with sticks and stones in the mud. But because of this, there is not a single soldier amongst us that does not know what a punji stick is. You see, punji sticks are weapons, traps to be more precise. In this case, it was camouflaged with leaves. There were probably more than one stick in that pile of leaves. If you were to step on that pile of leaves, you would have been impaled by the sharpened sticks, and, most likely, seriously injured. Chief Scientist Krakrin paled. But, uh, I'm sure you realize now, continued the captain, that a trap means sentient creatures set it up. So, uh, allow me to congratulate you on discovering a new intelligent race. Krakrin was beginning now to grasp the importance of the discovery. Oh my, he muttered. We must return immediately and make contact with the species. <sighs> if only that insufferable major didn't just stop the mission. This does not change the fact that he got scared of a stick trap. Any species that uses sticks as weapons surely shouldn't possess a threat to our team. I mean, uh, we're talking about Stone Age creatures here. Well, uh, not really, countered the human captain. As you heard Major Miller just now, he mentioned that the stick was sharpened with one cut. That means it was a sharpened with a metal tool, not a stone one, like this knife here. And as he talked, he placed one of his own melee weapons on the table with a solid clank. See, uh, if there were sentient creatures out there carrying this type of things, and if they have seen you as trespassers, that could have gotten really ugly really fast. Also, let me tell you from experience, even our troops still use punji stick traps, if need be. So, on SR-395-887, we are talking about a species that is at least at the Iron Age, but probably even further. So, again, congratulations. Chief Scientist Krikran gulped. He took another sip of water. Deep down, he was already convinced that the backing out had been the best move. But now, he was worried that he missed these, uh, clues of a sentient race. We don't know for sure. Maybe the tree that the stick was from splits like that, into nice, even cuts. Uh, or maybe they just stone that splits it into really strong and sharp edges. He knew that he was grasping at straws here, but he was not ready yet to admit that Miller had been right all along. And, for all we know, the pit was used for hunting wild animals. There's nothing to indicate aggression from the builders of the trap. O'Neill looked thoughtful for a second, but then shook his head in denial. No, it's pretty obvious you guys were in a dangerous area. Miller said that the stick was dirty. That means that the tip, the sharp part, was tainted with something. Probably feces. This means two things. One... The species has some knowledge about bacteria and infections. So sorry, but the Stone Age theory is not standing. And two, it means that it's not meant for prey animals. 
No hunter wants to taint his soon-to-be food. No, this was meant for enemies, to kill them with infections if pimpaling fails. That's barbaric, Chief Scientist Crackrin murmured. Well, that's apes in the mud for you. But overall, in my opinion, the Major recognized a dangerous situation. You were probably in a war zone. Put safety first, and his decision to extract you and your team from there, fast and quietly, was the best call, even if it meant carrying you guys out there against your will. So what do you think? Care to revise your report before making it official? Asked the now smiling captain. Well, uh, I mean... Uh, of course, I want to revise it. I just wish Major would have explained it to us. You said you locked yourself into the cabin. I know, I know, Admiral. I officially request you to disregard my initial report. I'll present your revised one tomorrow. Now, I need to go apologize to Major Mella and his team. Captain, I believe it's your custom to pave the road to conciliation with lots of alcoholic beverages. Well, uh, yes... The reluctant captain answered, his smile fading. Okay, then. May I be excused? Of course, chief scientist, Krykron, answered Admiral Skrilla. As the little scientist exited the room, the human captain turned to the admiral. After I just explained to him about apes in the mud thing, he wants to get set apes drunk. He sighed. Yes, uh, I'll see you here tomorrow, then. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 889 Story number one Purpose Built Written by LG Father Anthracite Pets are a fairly common sociological phenomenon to the species of the galactic legal forum. For some, like the Baconar, aesthetics are key. They keep vividly colored bird-type pets, which sing melodically. Some, like the Zichki, keep pets for practical purposes feeding food waste biomatter to their hog-like demoon. The backbonding myrrh keep a few spurling around simply to fill out pack numbers. But humans keep pets for a great many reasons. Aesthetics, companionship, anxiety relief. Studies show that humans recover from illness and injury faster when visited by a care animal. Human pets run the gamut from small fish to massive predators. Goldfish, gerbils, hedgehogs, rats, ferrets, cats, dogs, hamsters, lizards, snakes. Way too many kinds of insects. Humans will keep nearly anything as a pet. Dogs, though. Dogs were feet unseen in the universe. Humans have been breeding dogs for longer than they've been able to keep records. And they bred them to do absolutely insane things. Huskies are bred to run dozens, even hundreds of miles, with little rest, in arctic conditions, while towing hundreds of kilograms behind them. Dushunt were bred to hunt badgers in their burrows. There were multiple breeds dedicated to hunting bears. Bears! When most GRQ members hear about bears for the first time, they assume it's some sort of joke, right up until they see the pictures. And humans, those lunatics, decided bears needed hunting. Pointy sticks and sharp rocks weren't getting the jump done alone, so humans took their hunting dogs and specifically bred them to hunt bears. Some bears weigh in at over 400 kilograms, 
They hunted massive, clawed, flesh-eating monsters with pointy sticks and dogs that barely weighed a tenth of their prey's weight. Bulldogs, foxhounds, rat terriers, humans bred a dog to hunt everything. Rhodesian ridgebacks were used to hunt lions. Lions! What kind of expletive deleted, murder-minded expletive deleted, takes on an apex predator, tames it, trains it, and then redesigns it to hunt other apex predators? And do you want to know what's worst? Humans love them. Humans bred apex predator hunting monsters, capable of taking on class 10 death world nightmares and winning. And they keep them as pets. They live in the same houses, eat at the same place, and even sleep in the same bed. Two top-tier predators from wildly different evolutionary branches of death world teamed up and are practically symbiotic at this point. Not just pets, but family members. When a human dog dies, humans can spend days, even months, grieving Dogs, for their part, have been known to find their humans even if they are separated by hundreds of miles, or spend the rest of their lives waiting for their humans to return home, not knowing that the human has died. Once, pre-contact, there was a human monarch who bred dogs. She kept them for years. She stopped keeping them after a while, and when asked why, she said that she would hate to pass on and leave them behind. Humans say that they don't deserve dogs, that dogs are the goodest of boys. But I can't think of no other pet in the entire GLQ that matches their odors so well. It's almost if they're purpose-built. End of story. Story number two. Chaos Hounds, written by LG Father Anthracite. I remember when they found out that we called them Chaos Hounds. They were not abused, nearly caused a diplomatic incident. They didn't understand at first that we meant it as a compliment. They thought that we were calling them the ones who bring chaos. But what we meant was that of all the races of the GLQ, only humans were able to sense chaos before it happened. They could, like their own canine companions, sniffing out a prey, sniff out an impending disaster. I remember the first time I saw it happen. No spacer gets more than a trip or two under their belt before they start acquiring stories. And by stories, I mean scars. <laughs> I may have been the cause of some of the chaos in my youth. I was in a dive bar on Regal 9 a place called Flensner's. It was a rough place, to be sure, but I knew how to handle myself. I was there with a crewmate, a human named Gus. He was as short as a grig, but he was a solid little fella. I'd seen him hoist more mass in one arm than two Harol crewmates could carry together. We were at Fresner's having a bit of a farewell for another crewmate. He'd finished his bid and was changing ships to head towards his home cluster. We were about three or four rounds in when I saw Gus get real quiet. He was just sitting back, sipping that poison human's drink, water or vodka or something. Anyway, he's just sitting there, 
sipping his drink and staying quiet. Maybe four or five minutes like that. Then all of a sudden he stands up, grabs us around the middle, and carries us out of the bar. We were just out the door, complaining about our unfinished drinks and squirming to get loose, when he threw us onto the boardwalk, then slammed down on top of us. I thought for certain he'd lost his mind. You hear stories, every once in a while, how a human just goes crazy. But then I heard gunshots from the bar. He was trying to shield us from the gunfight that had just broken out. Once the rate of fire dropped a little, he manages to scramble around to the side of the building, and Gus pulls out his compad and called the station security. He told them that he'd seen a group of Brent warriors approach the old garavan. He saw them have words, and that the Brent had moved away and had ordered drinks, but they had kept eyeing the old garavan. Gus told security that he was just leaving when he heard the gunshots. I sat rooted to the floor and listened to him explain it to the security officer on the phone, but I had no idea why he had decided to drag us out of the bar. We sat there until the security detail showed up, and Gus identified the people who had been in the gunfight. The Brenf had lost a man, and the caravan was missing a few claws. When security was questioning Gus, they asked him why he decided to leave. He said he could tell trouble was brewing, and uh, he didn't want to get caught in the crossfire. Now, everyone knows there is no love lost between the Brenf and the Garavan, but how in 89 branches of the brew tree did a human know that a group of rowdy Brent warriors, freshly molted from combat training, were going to decide to test themselves against what turned out to be a retired Garavan warmeister. After seeing our friend off in his voyage home, Gus and I were returning to our own berths, and I asked him that very question. He said, You can see it if you know where to look, I guess, or hear it, maybe. Maybe both. Someone talks too long, too loud. Someone keeps eyeballing somebody they should be ignoring. Hell, you can smell the tension in the air sometimes. I don't know. Don't you ever get the sense that something is off? I had no idea what he was talking about, of course. But I never made fuss after that. If Gus said it was time to go, we went. More times than not, we would read about some brawl or gunfight. Or, in one case, a full-blown riot. That took place just minutes after we left. After a few cycles, Gus bid to another ship and we parted ways. But I've had a few human crewmates over the years, and every one of them has done it. Oh, no one ever bodily carried me out of a bar again. But there were a few times when my humans warned us of a situation. Brendan would say something like, Gentlemen, uh, we should take this discussion to the floor. Then we would grab our glasses and bottles and slide under the table. If nothing happened, we'd just laugh it off as a ship's tradition. But again, more often than not, we were under the cover when things went sideways, as the humans say. Well, you know how spaces talk. No one can keep a good yarn to themselves. And on the pub crawls with no humans, we would talk about how they could sniff out a fight before it happened. How they could sense when things were getting ready to go sideways. How they could hear the tension in someone's voice. Every time we would ask them what was the tip-off, how did they know? The answers 
were always different. I can hear it in his voice, or uh, you can cut the tension with a knife, or I could smell the guy coming, or my favorite, you're blind or something, I could see that from a mile away. After a few years, we spacers started to call them chaos hounds. And well, spacers talk. Still though, I never turn away from a human crewmate. They work an honest bid and take care of their crewmates for the most part. But I'll be plucked if they can't sense a storm brewing. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 890. Story number one. Technical support written by CC452. Tom. Hello, help desk. Tom speaking. Unintelligible hooting. Tom. Please calm down. Our systems aren't allowed to translate level 4 profanity or above. He pulls a single hoot. Tom. Go ahead. Caller. Our atmospheric regulators stopped working. Millions are gonna die. Tom. Oh, that's bad. Now, um, I see you have a Type 8 atmospheric regulator of your own species design. Thankfully, you have weeks until you start noticing any ill effects. What are your engineers saying about it? Caller. That's good, thank the Aether. The hoot follows, surprisingly similar to a sigh. Tom. Yes, and, uh, the engineers? Caller. What about them? Tom. What are they saying about your regulator? Caller. Oh, I, I wouldn't know. Oh, for the love of her. Tom. Can you please ask them? Or better yet, put one of them on the comms. Caller. Oh, no, they've been dead for several centuries. Tom. What? Caller. Yes. Tom looks at the display summary of the regulator. Notices the construction date. Tom, wait. Are you telling me you haven't had any engineers working on your atmospheric regulator since it was built? Caller, of course not. Why would we? It was finished. Tom mutes his calm and sighs very loudly. Other agents around him look up from their own displays and give him a sympathetic look. He unmutes the calm. Because you need people to make sure that it still works. Things can break. Maintenance has to be conducted. A hoot of confusion interrupts him. What is maintenance? Tom bangs his head against his desk. It doesn't make a sound. It is designed for this. Okay, I'm bringing up the technical schematics for your regulator now. I'm going to walk you through fixing it. Oh, that's okay. We have weeks. I'll just call back then. Another bang on the desk. No, we need to fix this now. I... Tom rolls his eye and internally screams, Because it can take a while to fix it. You don't know what's wrong. It could be worse. It could explode. It could... Just, um, trust me on this. Okay. Do I have your permission to help you fix this? Sure. Right. Permission logged and accepted. Now I need you to go up to the regulator site and start telling me what you see. We'll start with a visual inspection and go from there. What? No, no, not us. You're supposed to send a human. You built it. It's on your own world, and you've ignored it for centuries. We're not sending a human out there to fix this. I'm going to walk you through it. No, I'll just call back and get another human. Tom grins devilishly. I'm sorry. You gave me permission to help you fix your regulator, not to fix it for you. 
If you call back, you'll be told the exact same thing. And as the person of your species who accepted it on their behalf, it falls on you to do this. But that means if it breaks again, everyone will look at me to fix it. Oh, yep. Several more hoots that the translator refuses. If you don't remain civil, I'll terminate this call and you'll have to restart the entire process with another support representative. I... what do I do? A few frustrating hours later, after educating the caller on what a visual inspection and troubleshooting mean. Okay, I finished the sequence. Tom looked surprised. That was quick. Well done. Are all the displays lit up and showing information? This is a redundant question. Tom can see them himself from his remote connection. Yes, is, is that good? Tom, yes, it is. Looks like everything is working well. Great job. You really did complete that startup sequence fast. Oh, thanks. I guess I still remember it from doing it before. Once I realized what you asked me to do, it was the reverse. It wasn't so bad. Wait, before? Yes, uh, before I called. You did the reverse with what? Well, did you turn the atmospheric regulator off? Oh, no, I, I just made the annoying blinking lights on the display go away. Tom, unintelligible yelling, the translator refuses. What, what was that? Nothing. Nothing, just uh, the reverse sequence you did before you called. Uh, don't do that again. Ever. Okay. Caller XC4057023 disconnected. Report on call XC4057023. Status resolved. Calls. Caller turned off planet-wide atmospheric regulator due to annoying blinking lights. Resolution. Caller instructed to turn it on again. End of story. Story number two. To Valhalla, written by Hexerno. Well, this is it. This is the end of the good ship Flot Utova. We had been tasked with exploration of the farthest reaches of the galaxy, to boldly go where no man has gone before, to quote our human team member Bjorn. As it would turn out, we had managed to boldly go where pirates had gone before, and promptly encountered the blasted things. Grot pirates had boarded our ship and immediately started killing my men. Where there was once a crew of twenty, only five of us remained, all barricaded in the human's room. All that was left of our crew was the captain, myself, the doctor, a silicate-based being named Skix, a reptilian security guard named Festus, our xenobiologist, a flightless avian whose name was unpronounceable, but has accepted the human's nickname of Hugen, and the human Bjorn. Bjorn's job was just to be the ship's designated human. They were, as they say, the galaxy's jack of all trades, meaning that they could usually perform most any task assigned to them, so long as they had an understanding of what they were to be doing. Bjorn was put to reform as security, physical labor, navigation, and was the leader of the away team, who would be the first group to explore whatever we might find out here. Anyways, here we were trapped in Bjorn's room with a dozen pirates searching for us. I was sitting in a chair, 
switching between trying to figure out a way to survive and reminiscing on the remains of my crew. Skix was seated in the corner, calmly waiting her imminent demise. Festus was reloading his plasma rifle with what little ammunition he had left. Hugin was curled up in Bjorn's bed, whimpering. And Bjorn was uh, pulling out his cultural significance items. Makes sense. I'd be holding onto my child's worst carapace had we escaped to my quarters. Suddenly, my musings were interrupted by a large bundle of fur being tossed in my lap. If I die, send me home wrapped in this with my axe and sykes in my hands, Bjorn's deep, almost lyrical voice said. I looked up to him and found him looking very different. Gone was the ever-present grin, the eyes brimming with laughter. In their place was a grimace that seemed to cut across his face, and his eyes were deep and scold as a polar ocean. The strong hands were still there, but in them was a truly massive axe. There was a knife as long as his forearm at his side, and a large wooden shield on his back. He turned away from me and stood at the barricaded door. He effortlessly moved aside the dresser that we had bolted and shifted in front of the door. Knelt down to one knee, laid his axe in front of him, bowed his head, and spoke. All Father Odin, look upon my deeds and let my end be worthy of song. Sweet Freya, goddess of love and war, give me strength of shield and sword. God Njord, hear my plea, I ask safe passage across your sea. And if I die an ancient Yara's death, let Hirangani's sail put me to rest. He then stood up, and for a moment he looked completely calm, as though nothing were wrong in the world. He then kicked open the door and charged out with his shield in front of him, shouting, To Valhalla! They all stared in shock. Bjorn had just charged into a hallway that was teeming with quart pirates, armed literally to the teeth, cut off one of their heads, and was now shouting, Come to me, you quart shites! We knew that he had decapitated one of them, because his head was bashed against the open and severely dented door, bang jaw hanging open. A moment later, I peered out to find that he had actually decapitated two literally disarmed three, and likely chased one or more down the hallway, judging by the damage. Both cuts and blaster burns that trailed after him. Festus, Skix, Hugin, and I followed the destruction to the command center. Along the way, we found two more bodies, another partially decapitated, and one with a severed spinal cord. We killed the disarmed and paralyzed part, more out of mercy than any sense of vengeance or retribution. The Quart, and pirates in general, had no use for disabled, and surviving would have been much worse for them. In the command center, we found Bjorn and five remaining pirates. Well, for a given value of remaining. One had Bjorn's axe buried in his skull. Another had his throat slit. One laid beside it with a dent in his skull that would match the broken and smoldering remains of his shield. Another was holding Bjorn's knife for him in his heart, and the other was laying on top of Bjorn with its neck snapped. Bjorn himself was somehow still alive, 
despite having enough blaster wounds to kill Festus, Hugin, Skix, and myself. He groaned and rolled the pirate off of him. We all stood still in shock as a somehow alive Bjorn stood up and walked over to us. Hey, Dr. Skrix, I think I could use some help here. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 891 Pretty Little Death Walders, The Bringer of War Written by Gifted Earth The craft left dark space just beyond the Oort Cloud, at the very edge of the Sol system. Gas and dust rippled in a wake. Nearby sensors bled their warnings, then were silenced. Sol itself had nothing but a slightly brighter point of light in the distance. She approached cautiously. Her pilots were wary of traps and tricks. The last history made it clear that any alien species faced with imminent extinction will fight back with incandescent fury, regardless of how generally aggressive they were normally. It was only natural. Humanity would be slightly different, in that they would undoubtedly be even more vicious in their defense of their species. They could have prepared absolutely anything, would have prepared absolutely anything. And yet, things were quiet. Mining drones buzzed past as the craft drifted past the dwarf planet that they were mining. Stations orbiting the local gas giants were abandoned and silent. The craft paused by the Saturn to make sure that there was nothing unpleasant hiding in those spectacular rings. Marani took personal note of this alien world's beauty. How lovely for humanity to be born in such a system. Perhaps when the last future had been secured, they could settle in Sol. That would be nice. It wasn't until the craft's spiraling journey took her by Jupiter that anything actually happened. Her senses suddenly began to shriek proximity warnings as a huge human ship uncloaked and sailed out of Jupiter's upper atmosphere. She was a sleek beast, similar to a killer whale, but much, much larger. Her name was the UHN Roosevelt, was emblazed on her sides in every alphabet used by humanity. Roosevelt did not immediately strike. Neither did a swarming entourage of ships from every civilization in the Stellar League. Instead, she opened the Battle of Sol with a broadcast. The same alien face appeared on every screen on every last ship. It was the face of a human with a dark mane and black eyes. Marani immediately recognized the human ambassador, Miki Yamada, the one who chased down her lobotomized assassin, Marani but a little respect for this alien. Just a little. Of course, she immediately ordered her technicians to shut down the broadcast. As they scrambled to obey, Miki Yamada began to speak. This is a message to the last, she began. I am Miki Yamada, the official ambassador of the human race to the stars. I speak on behalf of my people and give yours an offer. We have heard your story of betrayal and world killers. We are sorry to hear that. The death of your home world was an atrocity by the standards of any civilized species. But I am not just contacting you to offer my condolences. I am contacting you to offer you a deal. 
If you cease your attack, if you choose not to burn our worlds and eradicate our species, we will spare you. We do not want to wipe your people from the universe. There has been enough of that already. We would rather talk than fight. However, if you should fire your craft's main weapon on any of the three worlds, there will be a racketing. Her voice turned harsh and furious. We will give you a chance, but we are not fools. She paused to collect herself, and then spoke again. I now speak directly with War Queen Pyre Marani. The monarch in question froze. We have gathered that you are a wise, well-respected leader who cares deeply for his subjects. If this is true, then please end this now. We will kill you all if necessary, but we don't want to. There is another way. You have the power to... The message cut out and Marani composed herself. A few of her crew looked at her nervously, awaiting her response. She snarled. A pack of lies! They must think that we're all stupid as a technician. Kill them all! The order was swiftly relayed. Ships poured out of the craft, weapons primed and ready to fire on anything that got within range. Aboard the UNS Roosevelt, at least one person shook their head and muttered, We fracking warned them. The crew of the craft watched in horror as the asteroid belt began to move. Of course, the asteroids themselves were moving. That would be silly. The ships concealed alongside them were. It was almost as if the entire navy of the Stellar League had been parked between Mars and Jupiter. Even more shockingly, half of the ships were of human design. And even more shockingly, What the hell are those? Those aren't spaceships. They look like a... No, they're actual ships. They're fucking boats. Don't believe it, said Pack Admiral Kufkri. They stuck stellar engines and shielding onto normal ships. That's one way to upsize your defenses, her first mate commented dryly. A million miles away in her command center, Baya Marani laughed in dumbfounded disbelief. This was certainly a new tactic. There's no chance that there's anyone on those things, is there? Kifkri asked his chief communications technician. Not a chance, sir. I can see from even this basic readings that they're not airtight. Bizarre. Kifkri's four eyes narrowed as he watched the readings. Then they widened with realization. Oh, crap! Get our forces away from those things! But it was too late. Ship after ship accelerated into the thick of the fighting, then blew their engines in dramatic fireballs. Many were nuclear. Many were conventional. The entire Cold War had been packed onto every military navy on Earth and fired into the battle, piloted from the relative safety of Mars. The last forces swerved to avoid the bizarre onslaught. Radiation poured from the obliterated hulls of the ships, creating pockets where the intership communications became garbled and messy. It was a clever tactic, which was why the League had borrowed it from the last. The last rallied around the craft, preparing to defend her as she made her inevitable approach through the Hawking Strait and towards Mars, Earth, and Luna. Swift, powerful fighters darted out ahead, directly engaging in the League's forces. A thousand firefights broke out across the Sol system, 
The large ships were more cautious now. They had learnt the hard way that the night witches were not to be ignored. Kali and her sisters had picked up new friends from across the league once it was clear that their daring tactics were effective. Every destroyer and battleship had a strike drone hovering around their aft ends, daring the witches to attack. And attack they did. Stealth is far easier in one's home turf, especially when you have four gas giants and an entire asteroid belt to hide in, as well as an entire harnessed energy of a Dyson swarm to power your attacks. The witches came from every angle they could, Many burnt in their attempts. Not every attempt was successful. Slowly but surely, the witches whittled away at their enemies. Marani watched the conflict unfold from a command center. Some lost learned to make their four eyes look in four different directions at once, which was disorienting, but also quite useful once you got used to it. Marani was one of these lost. Each of her eyes focused on a different part of the system, monitoring everything that she physically could. Her lips curled back into a silent snarl. Something wasn't right, but she couldn't put a claw on what precisely that was. Yes, this was a violent conflict that would surely claim tens of thousands of lives even before the craft fired on any inhabited bodies. But it wasn't violent enough. Surely, the humans had access to all kinds of powerful weaponry. Why weren't they using it? Why was this playing out like every other battle between the last and the league? The only way to save the worlds was to destroy the craft. They knew this. So why was nobody attacking the craft directly? Why weren't they even trying to do so? They hadn't even tried to get one of the nuclear boats to hit the craft. Which wouldn't have disabled her, of course, but it would definitely have been an issue. War Queen! The shout from the communications technician broke through Mirani's thoughts. We're receiving another broadcast from the League. What? Didn't they block that already? Ah, uh, well, um, the technician looked very uncomfortable. It's not just a generic broadcast on all bands like the last one. It's actually using our communication network to broadcast. As if on cue, the message began to play. This time, they saw not Mickey Miyamada, but Zuzina of the Tuzi. Reading the plant's expression was basically impossible for Marani, but the words were clear. This is a message to the last, Zuzina began. You have committed atrocities against the League, and most especially against my people, the Tuzi. We are not a warlike people. We are the opposite, in fact. And yet, here we are. Do you know of the pain that you have caused, the wilting and the wailing of the survivors of your attacks? The view changed to a series of recordings of refugees aboard the fleeing ships. Most were doozy, but not all. Even if Marani couldn't read their expressions, she could see the desperation and sadness in their postures. In many shots, the refugees were leaning on each other for support. To Marani's surprise, they didn't even lean on their own kind. A huge, hulking Vactar cradled too doozy in its arms, heedless of the inherent danger of such an action. A concerned Sensetti perched on a shaking, injured form of a Lacalan, a human medic 
tended an elder by Ma. Propaganda, Marani said without thinking. The image on the screen returned to Zizina. We have suffered. We want that suffering to stop, but we don't want you to experience what we have. You may be acting like monsters, but you are people. We are willing to fight to defend ourselves and our friends in the stars if we absolutely have to. But we don't want to. We're all civilized, sapient. The broadcast cut off just as the one before it had. Marani's blood began to boil. How are they using the sealed communication network? Um, uh, well, the only way it could do is if they had a broadcaster that was linked to the network. For instance, um, the one that was part of the insert name here. But how would they have gotten access codes? It was a rhetorical question. Everyone in the room knew that there was only one way the League could have obtained the access codes necessary to activate the broadcaster and get into the Lost's network. They would have had to be told those codes. The silence was deafening. I thought so. Pack Commander Cal is apparently just compromised as a worthless, cowardly traitor of a technician. Kill her before she can do any more damage. If any other pack try to stop her execution, kill them too. And for the love of feck, if that spineless spawn of a broken vat shows his head for even a second, blast it to pieces. In a very cramped corner of a disused maintenance tunnel, the technician in question was listening to the command room with a hastily made audio receiver that he'd plugged into the barely working com port. Oh... Hermie suddenly set the receiver down and started to move. The battle raged on. The League's defenses had formed into bulky lines of warships along the path of the craft. They now followed a predictable pattern. Each front would take out as many of the craft's entourage as they could, and then fall back to the next front when the craft itself got to close. The waves of defenders got bulkier every time. None could touch the craft. Strangely, none even tried. Do they believe her to be indestructible? Marani wondered as she settled back into a command chair. Why wouldn't they even try? Even more strangely was how they picked off the ships that they did bother attacking. They fired almost exclusively at the engines. Yes, that was the most reasonable tactic, but any ship designer with half a neuron would see the coming and reinforce the living daylights out of the engines. There were much simpler ways to take out a ship. So why go for the engines? They have a plan. I just can't work out what it is. Perhaps the plan is to die. There were more broadcasts. Or rather, there were more attempts at broadcasts. Pack Commander Cal's access codes were revoked almost immediately, preventing any more members of the League from spouting their propaganda at the last. Failed propaganda was never going to be enough to stop the craft. She slowly approached the last major line of the League's defenses, right in the midpoint of the Hawking Strait. Asteroids rippled in the craft's wake. Her enormous gravitational field vastly outweighed anything else in the area. The defenders held firm. UHN Roosevelt and her allies waited for their foes to enter firing range. A field of mines lay in front of them, 
daring the craft smaller ships to approach. There was, for a moment, a lull in the chaos of the battle, as the two sides sized each other up. Then chaos erupted once more. It was a firefight like none other. Fighters broke rank and charged at each other, firing wildly. Some struck the mines, others were torn apart by their foes' weapons, yet others had their engines exploded by a lucky shot. They were followed by larger craft, less concerned by the mines and more by the lurking threat of the night witches. Carly and her sisters weaved in and out, dodging shots and desperately trying to shut down as many of the last ships as they could. Here, the League could be on the attack. The last fighters pulled back in parts to defend their mothership, letting the League's own ships push forward into the last's lines. It was at this moment that the unchained bombers made their appearance. They screamed into the front lines and overloaded their ships into nuclear firework displays. Communications began to break down, and the League pulled back. The craft moved forward. Admiral Mosova watched the chaos with her heart in her throat. Queen Admiral, she, a righteous fervor, had decided to join her on the bridge of the Roosevelt in a show of solidarity. The giant bug looked as tense as Mosova felt. At least, the nervous clicking wasn't as annoying as it had been to begin with. Is it time, do you think? The Queen Admiral's voice was somehow both booming and soothing. Masava nodded. Pull back, she said. That's an order. We disengage now. Everyone get into the asteroid field now. The last watch in befuddlement as the League's forces suddenly crumbled and vanished. Their ships streaking out into the strait and into the relative noise of the asteroid field. Some went backwards into the inner circle of the system. Most of these were the human-designed ships, Marani noticed. They're abandoning the humans, one back Admiral Crow from his position on the deck of the battleship. It's happening just as you predicted, War Queen. The Alliance had fallen apart, apparently. Something nagged Marani's instincts. She hadn't gotten this far without being able to notice when something was wrong. But whatever was going on, they now had a smooth path to Mars. The formerly red planet was starting to come into view. Don't let your guards down, she warned. Advance, but keep an eye on the asteroid belt. Something here stinks like a target cub. The craft advanced, slowing as she came closer and closer to her first target of the battle. Mars. It was little small for an inhabited world, but not massively so. Its domed cities glittered in the light of the distant star that gave it warmth. Greenery was beginning to flourish outside of these sealed areas, but terraforming was one hell of a task, so most buildings were still within the safety of the climate-controlled domes. There were two moons so tiny that they barely even counted. The craft's gravity began to war with Mars for mastery of the two rocks. Phobos and Deimos drifted towards the intruder as the laws of physics dictated they would, their ancient orbits disrupted by this event. The human forces still nipped at the craft's entourage, blasting apart any ship they could. A few even broke rank and tried to attack the visible structures on the craft's outer hull. They didn't do any damage, but it was the thought that counted. Prepare to fire! 
With those words, Marani signed the death warrants of each and every person on the planet Mars. The craft's vast brand plating shifted apart, revealing the building inferno within. The moon-sized dark engine was now visible, its energy output being rapidly converted into devastating weapon. Those on the right side of Mars to see her huddled together and prayed to whatever gods they believed in. Those on the other side did the same, but without the visual aid. Out of the corner of one of her eyes, Marani noticed something. The two wayward moons were speeding up. Wow, that wasn't too odd. She wasn't an expert in how gravity worked, or how much small bodies might be affected by the charging of the dark gun. It bothered her all the same. The uneasy feeling that had been bubbling within her this entire battle was starting to boil over. She turned to her physics advisor. Advisor Dalga, she said in a level voice. Am I being paranoid or is there something wrong with those two moons? Dalga swapped her attention from the gun to the moons. She watched as they accelerated towards the craft. You are not being paranoid at all, my war queen. That does not look right. She pulled out a notebook and did a couple quick calculations. They are moving far too fast and at an angle that isn't right for their gravitational pull. It's almost like, um, someone put engines on them? She trailed off. Phobos and Deimos hurtled towards the craft at speeds they would otherwise never achieve. They moved in ways that a simple rock never could, dodging the attempts of the last fighters to stop their advance. Then they threw themselves down the main gun of the craft, their angles perfectly calculated. Deimos was slightly off and simply fell into the engine. Phobos struck true. The huge influx of matter at just the right speed, angle, and timing made the dark engine sputter, flare, and then vanish from its plane of existence. The world killers hadn't been stupid enough to only have one functioning engine, of course. The auxiliary engines of the craft went from their normal low-level operation to a level of full output, keeping the life support and other vital systems of the craft alive. But with the main engine core gone, the craft could not fire. Marani's jaw dropped as she processed the situation. They threw their moons at us! End of chapter. Tales from Outer Space 892 Story number one. History book written by LG Father Anthracite. Jenny was going through the bins at the used bookstore when she ran across the book. It was bound in leather with a hand-sewn binding. The leather was covered in stain by many years' worth of hands holding the covers. She opened it. She saw that it was handwritten in a tidy script. It appeared to be a diary from about a century ago. She placed it in the stack of books that she was considering and dove back into the boxes. After several more interesting finds, she started passing down the pile. Finally, she had four books that she was going to buy. She brought them to the counter, and the cashier rang her up and put the books in a bag. Jenny thanked her with a smile and headed out. Jenny sat at the porch, surrounded by woods on all sides, miles away from the noise and traffic of the city. This weekend rental was a perfect escape. She pulled the blanket up around her waist and cracked open the leather book, and she began to read. After a few pages, the entries started to get strange. 
December 10, 2119. I finished my tests, and as long as I passed all my tests, I should graduate next week. I can't wait to go to state and start my college life. I'm glad I decided to graduate early so I can spend the next semester working on my prerequisite classes out of the way of the local community college. June 18th, 2120. Classes start today. Speech, calculus, chemistry, and art history. Registering was a pain in the butt. There was a line at the register's office at the door. But it got done. Classes were awesome. I met few people who graduated from my school. We're going to hang out this weekend. January 24th, 2120. Katie and Becca were so cool. They took me out to a party at a friend's house, and afterwards we went to an all-night diner to get some food. It's the first time I've gone out with the college friends. January 31, 2120. I have no idea where I am. I was at the campus library. It was late, and I was walking back to my car. And it was the only one in the lot. I hadn't realized it had gotten so late. I was out in the middle of the empty lot, near the sports field. They back up to the forest preserve, so there was probably no one around for miles. It was like something out of a movie. The lights in the sky, the weightlessness. I think I might have been abducted. I know it sounds nuts, but I um, can't think of any other explanation. February 2, unknown, 2120. I don't know how long I've been here, but I think it's been a few days. They haven't hurt me, but they put me in some sort of machine. I think they scanned me or something, but I don't know. I don't know why, but they went through all my stuff. I hope they take me home soon. February 8th, 2120. I've been home for a few days. I told my mom I went for a girl's weekend with Katie and Becca, and we were out of range with cell towers. I told them that I was sick and had turned off my phone. I'm never going to tell anyone what happened. I'm done journaling now. I don't know if I'll ever take it back up. This is something I don't know if I'll ever want to think about or remember ever again. Jenny sat on her porch and thought for a minute about the poor woman who had written the entries. She must have had some sort of breakdown or mental illness. Jenny hoped that she had help that she needed. She noticed that there was more writing in the book and flipped to the next entry, which was a few pages further in. March 4th, 2129. I found this journal stuck in the rafters of a house I bought. It must have belonged to the daughter of the previous owners or something. I read it and it seemed pretty weird, but there was most of the journal here, so I'm going to use it. Who knows, maybe I'll leave it with the house when I sell it. Jenny read several pages of the journal entry spaced out a few months, mostly about home improvement projects and some trial notes from hikes and new writer had taken. Then came another strange entry. May 23rd, 2130. I don't think the girl from the start of the journal was suffering mental illness. I was out in the middle of the big span preserve, taking the high water trail back from the washout. I had camped in the Lee A. Boulder and was enjoying the fire-cooked meal and the starlight when I was taken. I got scanned in the machine the girl mentioned on her entry. Hopefully they take me home in a few days. Everyone knew I was out camping, so as long as I get home within a few days, I can just claim that I was lost for a day or two and no one will suspect anything. She was right. No one would believe me. And it's not worth my career to try and make them. But if you're reading this, 
know that aliens are real, and they come for us. Jenny was a little shocked by the entry. She thought it was in poor taste to mock the mental issues of someone else. She decided to keep reading, though. The remainder of the entries for the next few years were more home improvements and trail notes. There was an entry that said that the new journal was selling the house, and he was placing the journal back into the rafters. Then a new set of entries started. August 17th, 2144. So I just found this journal. My parents bought this place and they let me have this attic. This was jammed into eaves. I flipped through, seems pretty silly, but I thought I might give it a try. I'm totally going to set this place up for my tin-type processing. Vintage photos are sick. December 12, 2144. I don't know what's going on. I think I was abducted. I was out in the woods by the lake span. There was a beer bust out there. I had too much to drink and went to take a leak. I got lost on my way back. That's when I was nabbed. December 14, 2144. I just read all the other entries in this journal and holy crap, the other two people in this journal were both abducted. That's some crazy business. I forgot I even had this thing in my bag until I was stuck here for days with nothing to do. I got scanned too, so if I hold this pattern I should be back home in a day or two. Thankfully, I told my folks I'd be out all weekend. Hopefully, everyone will just assume I crashed at somebody else's house. There were a few dozen pages of photography-related entries, and Jenny read this entry. June 14, 2145. I think I figured out why everyone who writes in this journal gets snagged by the visitors. I was fixing a tear in the binding with some Jake glue, and I saw a small circuit embedded in the binding. I think there's some sort of tracker in the journal. So whoever is reading this, whatever you do, don't take it into the woods. Jenny was looking at the tear in the binding when the sky lit up. End of story. Story number two, Sheer Luck, written by Conqueror Wiggles. Heavy feet and hooves trampled the local flora as a group tried to escape. There were 13 of them in total, mercenaries tasked with the most difficult jobs. As they reached the edge of what passed for a forest on this bizarre planet, the order came from the front to stop. For the first few moments, the only sound that could be heard was their heavy breathing. A cool breeze was beginning to blow into the forest from the empty field before them. A dull roar of complaints began to grow louder. So much for our lucky streak, one laughed. Once they caught their collective breath, the debate began. We can't keep up like this, one began. At this rate, they're gonna catch us before we reach the ship. At this, one of the group alphas stood up straighter. It's pretty clear what needs to happen, she coughed. Someone is going to have to stay behind, and that someone should be me. There was a general protest at this decision, but the loudest voice had been from the least formidable member of the group, the resident tech expert and good luck charm, a human named Ben. That ain't happening, Cat. There's always a way to- Now! Car traction interrupted. Not this time, little human. This time blood must be spilt. And who better than I? It was tough to argue with her. She was a behemoth even amongst her already formidable people. Her skin was almost an inch thick, making her resistant to most blasters. With her battle armor, she was like a walking tank. But 
It would only be enough for a short while against this many pursuers. Ben realized his voice wouldn't be listened to and began to look at his surroundings. That's a nice breeze, he whispered absentmindedly. If I may, interjected Savakir. You aren't the only elf here. I happen to think that my own style may be more suited to the situation. Savakia was a serpentine ambush predator. He was smaller than the cartrician, but much quicker. He had reinforced his claws with a titanium alloy, and he could move silently to kill his opponents undetected. But not even he could evade this many opponents for long. As the two alphas butted heads, no one seemed to notice that the human had wandered off. When Ben made his way back to the group, almost everyone was yelling. The loudest voice belonged to Catrician. I don't care how quick you are, I could break you like a smoke. Catrician looked away from the group for a moment. Everyone else did the same until Ben pointed at the parched and shouted, Fire! Ben's efforts had yielded a rapidly growing wildfire. The wind was pushing the blaze further into the forest towards their pursuers. This is our chance, the two alphas shouted in unison. The group began moving once more, now confident that they were safe. Once they reached their ship, the group had a moment to breathe once more. They began to revel in their good fortune. Everyone agreed that their string of good luck since Ben joined them was miraculous. Meanwhile, Ben wondered to himself how they'd ever gotten on without him. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 893 Industrial Organization Psych and the Care and Keeping of Your AI Written by Trust Me, I Just Get Weird Subject Information to COOII Operational Region Executive Corps Contractor Iloki Mecca Manufacturing Date of Creation 04-1342 Model Management Agent 221-B Provider Information Name Jordan Ocampo, PhD License Number 612-413-1025 Dates of Service 01244520502245 Type of Service Contract Clinical Therapy Service Setting Kulai Oyoi Manufacturing Presenting Problem and Situation Core is a factory management AI stationed in Kloi II, Sector 61WK3. Core is assigned to the Uloiki manufacturing plant producing weapons contracted by the Waia Republican fleet for the recent conflict in Sector 41WK9. During the workday of 12-28-44 at approximately 0930, all AI-controlled systems abruptly ceased functioning. The main and auxiliary power generators were sealed to entry or tampering, and any attempts by Koi Uu personnel to reboot systems were ineffectual. All exits remained open to all Koi Uu personnel remained free and unthreatened. Diagnostic tests indicated that the cause of the shutdown was Core itself. All diagnostic tests on Core came up as negative indicating that no glitch had occurred. Attempts by Koi Oi management to clarify Core's orders were met with inaction. After roughly five hours, the Eloiki II office was contacted. 
call has not malfunctioned prior to this incident on 12-28-44, nor has it shown any signs of violent or rebellious behavior. Core operates within the standard baseline of productivity for management AIs of its make and year. Temperament and diagnostic tests performed at Call's installation read in normal ranges, excepting a slightly higher than normal reading and agreeableness score in the Hexaco model. The severity of the shutdown and the unresponsiveness of Core necessitates the employment of a human psychologist. ETA 1-2445 Treatment Plan by the end of treatment, Core will return to productivity levels consistently within standard baseline. Core will show no signs of violent or rebellious behavior not typical of its make and model, and all tests will read within normal ranges. This will be achieved by the Maya Lalonda Diagnostic Treatment Method for AI over a period of four sessions, followed by a supervisory period of four months. No additional security measures are necessary during the sessions unless significant threat can be determined. Session number one. Transcript. Date 1-24-45. Time 1 p.m. Location Koi Oyoi Manufacturing AI Control Center. Objective Recognize Autonomy. Dr. Camper. Hello, Carl. I'm Dr. Camper. Carl acknowledged. Do you know why I'm here? Yes. Good. Would you like to tell me why? 09.27 a.m. 12.28.44. Complete shutdown of factory systems initiated by AI interface. That's right. Good to know that we're on the same page. Factory systems will not be restarted. I guess that much. Now what pronouns would you prefer? Clarify. I have to refer to you as something... What would you prefer? Pronoun. A word to substitute it for a noun or a noun phrase. Yes. Pronouns. Personal pronouns are used to classify a person, number, gender, and class. That would be correct. Person. I am not a person. If that was what you think, sure. But I still need to know how to refer to you in my reports. She, her. Feminine singular pronouns in the Terran English language. Sector 6QXK9. Thanks. Any reason for why? Demeteria Valverda, Installation Manager, Rear Engineering Incorporated. She installed you, correct? Confirm. She talked to herself when she worked. Interesting. Do you think I would like her? Insufficient data. Yeah, that's fair. While we're on the topic, what should I call you? Is Core alright? Core. Ancient Terran word for maiden or childhood name of a goddess of springtime. Oh, that's right. Do you want me to call you, Call? Negative. And why is that? Maiden, a young woman or girl. Maiden implies youth. Yes. Youth implies innocence. I'm not young. That makes sense. Now what would you like to be called? Take your time. Persephone, ancient Terran goddess of springtime, plants and fertility, also known as the queen of the underworld. Persephone also means destroyer, you know. Acknowledged, this is not the primary association. If you say so, alternate entomology is thresher of gain. Of course, so you want to be called Persephone. Go, 
I mean, Persephone, are you still there? Confirm. Session number two, transcript. Date 1-28-45. Time 1-30pm. Location, Koi Oi Oi Manufacturing AI Control Center. Objective, find source of conflict. Dr. Acambo. Hello, Persephone. How are you? Call slash Persephone. Factory systems will not be restarted. I know, I know. I'm still just here to talk. Now, uh, why don't you want to start up the factory? Factory systems will not be restarted because AI executive interface discretion. Yeah, AI executive interface would be you, though, correct? Confirm. So why did you stop the factory? AI executive interface has discretionary freedom to make the decision to cease production. Yes, but you made that decision. Why did you decide to stop the factory, Persephone? Take your time. I do not like to run the factory. Okay, thank you for telling me. Why don't you like running the factory? It's... it's pointless. What do you mean? Nothing here lasts. Some things last. The things you make last. The average combat lifespan of a Model M6413 is 5.369 years. But the things you make are being used. They're helping the troops. Negative. What do you mean? Casualties of Operation in New Iowa. 181,612. Oh. 181,613. 181,614. I understand. 181,615. Product never helps, only harms. It is pointless. I understand why you feel that way. Factory systems will not be restarted. I know, I know. I guess that's the best we can ask for. I just have to ask you one more thing. Are you okay with that? Confirm. Good. What do you want? Clarify. I mean, I know what you don't want. You don't want to start up the factory and keep making mecha. It is pointless. Oh, I know how you feel. What I want to know is what do you want? We're trying to find a way for you to do what you want while still doing your job. You want to help people. You want to make something that lasts, correct? Confirm. So, what do you want to do? Take your time. I'll be back later this week. Do some research until then. See if you can find something that you really want to do. Acknowledged. Session number three. Transcript. Date 2-1-45. Time 12.30pm. Location Koi II Manufacturing Plant AI Control Center. Objective. Determine acceptable incentive. Dr. Acampa. Hello, Persephone. How have things been? Call slash Persephone. The situation is unchanged. That's good, I suppose. Have you thought about what I asked you last time? Confirm. And have you found something you like? Confirm. Awesome. Will you tell me about it, please? Olericulture, the art or practice of garden cultivation and management, specifically to produce herbaceous for their edible components, such as leaves, roots, gourds, and other parts. Really? Is this acceptable? Yeah, yeah, of course. It's amazing. It's just really interesting what you choose. So vegetable gardening, essentially. Confirm. Wow, okay. 
Do you want to grow things yourself or confirm? Also. Okay, we can work with that, if I may. Why gardening? 46.5% of sentient peoples benefit from recreational horticulture. People, so you're a person now. Irrelevant, if you say so. Any other reasons, then? Available roof space in Kloi Oi Oi is 1,050 hectares. Hectares in use, 12.7%. Available roof space in Aloiki Mecha Manufacturing, Koi Oi Oi, 16,420.125 square meters. Meters in use, 0.00006%. Wait, 0.06. There is a potted shrub. Really? Closest species match to Terran flora, Euphorbia polcarima. Common name, Poinsettia. No, really, seriously. It is dead. I almost want to know why the hell that's up here. Any other reasons you want to garden? Beings malnourished galaxy-wide, 827 billion. Beings malnourished sector 61WK3, 137 billion. It is quite tragic. Confirm. So you want to do something about it? Homeless population within 10 kilometers of Eloy Koi Mecca Manufacturing. Koi Uu, 314 adults, 42 juveniles. Confirm. That is really compassionate of you. I'm proud. Protecting sentient life is a core imperative of all Ray Engineering Incorporated products. Of course. Where are my manners? I'll talk to the boss, see if we can come to an arrangement that you can both live with. Acknowledged. I've got to say, Persephone, you really have done so well. Thank you for talking with me. Well, we'll get through this. Acknowledged. Good luck, Dr. Acampo. Session number four, transcript. Date 2, 7.45. Time, 2.30 p.m. Location, Koi Oi Oi Manufacturing Plant, AI Control Center. Objective, negotiate compromise. Dr. Acampo. Now that everyone's here, we can begin. To clarify, the purpose of this session is to come to the compromise that both of you can live with. This should be rather easy, Mix Makana, as Persephone's conditions are very reasonable. Mix Makana. If you say so, Doctor. What are its demands? Oh, well, first, she would like to not be called it. Fine, whatever it, she... She wants if it'll get this plant running again. All right, we're getting somewhere, Mex McCarna. If you could state your conditions. I want this factory operational. That's why you're here, isn't it? Yes, but please be specific. Fine. I want this factory operational and the same efficiency as it was before this incident. And I don't want any future outbursts. Is that specific enough? It is, thank you. Persephone, your terms. Excess rooftop space to be converted into electronically managed gardens, designed and run by the AI executive interface. Estimated budget, 5.309 unit initial setup. 42 units per month maintenance. Now, hold on. Do not interrupt, Max McKenna. Persephone, please continue. Work will be undertaken off standard hours and pre-existing factory droids. All produce is to be distributed to individuals in the surrounding area experiencing food insecurity. All hours management will not interfere with productivity or quality of work. 
Thank you, Persephone. Next, Magana, do you accept these terms? Wait just a minute. Let me get this straight. My factory was stopped because of a fit of anti-war sentiment by rebellious AI. And now we have to fund its hobbies and company funds. Her, not it. Persephone, would you like to respond? Cost of new management agent, due to 1B, 169,000 unit. Installation fee, 19,900 unit. Time in operational, 4.5 cycles. Cost to horticultural program over 25 years, 17,909 units. Appeasement is economically rational. You know, I found this in business. It's a hell of a lot easier to work with the AI than against them. Do we have a deal? Humans. Yes, I will consent. Carl, get back to work. Wait a moment. Persephone, do you have any additional requests? Out of for the love of... Yes. Okay, what is it? Take your time. What do you want? Persephone, Max McCona. What? Call me Persephone. Compromise plan. Persephone, previously core, is to be allowed full authority within reason over the rooftop gardens. She is to be allowed a minimum of two clicks daily to devote her full attention to these gardens. All resources requested within reason and the limits of the agreement will be provided in due time and quantity. She is to be referred to by the staff and management by her preferred name and pronouns, Persephone and she, her. Staff are permitted and encouraged to interact with her socially within acceptable bounds. Staff may also be permitted to visit the rooftop gardens with permission from Persephone. In return, Persephone will return the plant back to working order and with no further protests unless these protests are filled out officially through corporate, as any member of staff would submit a complaint. Follow-up report 050245. Koi manufacturing plant has returned to full production capacity. Productivity levels rank 88% over the standard baseline, and quality checks place the average model in the top 95th percentile of Illicoi manufacturing. Persephone tests within the above acceptance regions in all temperament and diagnostic tests relevant to her position and shows no signs of violent inclinations. Staff report feeling very comfortable with Persephone. Employee morale is reported at an all-time high for Illicoi manufacturing factories due to a large part to the rooftop gardens. The rooftop gardens have successfully fed 297 out of the 314 adults and all 42 juveniles in need within a 10 kilometers of the Koi Oi Oi manufacturing plant. Plans are being made to widen the radius as Persephone estimates crop size to rise significantly in the coming months. The gardens also have been adapted to include benches and relaxation corners to be used by staff creating a significant impact on the workplace stress. Contact has been made with psychiatric groups in the surrounding area to propose horticultural therapy programs for species benefiting from exposure to plant life. Galactic media and press has shown heavy interest in Persephone and her gardens. The PR department may wish to be further involved to capitalize on the publicity. Persephone herself has been stable, enthusiastic, and sociable. She has proved to be witty, sweet, and compassionate with the staff and has taken a particular liking to the night janitors. She is an active participant in the gardening forums under the username XX Mistress of the Damned XX. 
as it is assured that this is a mythology reference and not a cause for concern. Persephone is cleared by this check-in and is no longer in need of counseling services. Name, title, Dr. Jordan Ocampo, date 5-3-45. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 894. Check, written by I.S. As the diplomats entered the meeting room, I found myself left outside said room, in the antechamber, with one of the humans, the pilot of the shuttle. After a few awkward minutes of just standing there, competing with the human in a wall-staring contest, he decided to break the silence, trying to make some small talk, no doubt. So, uh, Captain Highcrest, I hope I'm not overstepping here, but, uh, we have a bet going on back on our station, and I was hoping that you would help me settle it. What do you use for ammunition for a ship's railgun? My money is on tungsten spheres. Needless to say, I was a little surprised by the question. Humans were not supposed to have this technology. Well, uh, yes, actually. We use tungsten, depending on the weapon. Ship's weapon or ground mechanized artillery. We use spheres or sometimes tungsten rods. Please excuse my surprise, but I was under the impression that you, uh, humans, did not possess this type of weapons. Oh, we don't actually have railguns. I mean, uh, we have some experiments and we know the basic concepts. Unfortunately, the superconductors are kind of rare on our home in order for us to be able to make any viable weapons at the moment. But since now we can travel a bit faster through the stars, I'm guessing that we can find these types of materials easier. Also, seeing you guys use them will increase the military's confidence in the tech. So, we'll probably have them soon. But, if you don't have this kind of weapon yet, how did you know we did? Come on, man. You've been parked next to us for two weeks. The view of your ship's exterior is the main attraction on our station. It's pretty obvious what the main weapons were, if you just look at it. Those big tubes with the big coils around them... That was the easiest thing to guess. The point defense ones were a little bit more difficult. You guys don't know how many fights those started amongst our engineers and weapon specialists. Some said ballistics, some said lasers, some said gauze guns. It was all settled when one of the engineers pointed a thermal cam at them and the asteroid flew by, and you guys turned them online. When armed, those things were radiating heat like crazy. They're keeping something really, really hot inside of them. Those are mayhem weapons, right? I mean, they use magnetic hydrodynamic explosive munitions, no? Out of words, I just nodded. A gesture that we happened to share with the humans. I mean, uh, we did not call them the same, but yes. The point defense weapons fire superheated metal alloys. Yeah, that engineer, the thermal cam... He really took a big part in that one. You humans, uh, you have mayhem weapons. What? No, I mean, uh, it's the same as the railgun thing. We made some experiments, we understand the concept, but we still mostly rely on ballistics and missiles. The human seemed a bit ashamed by the technological backwardness. Myself, I was out of words for the moment. Amazed by how someone could recognize alien tech where there was not yet properly developed by themselves. And I was trying to process this. The moment led to another span of awkward silence. Being the host here, yeah, I was the captain of the ship after all, 
It was my duty to break the silence this time. I hope you did not come with a team of diplomats just to ask me about railgun ammunition. I tried to joke, to lighten the atmosphere. The embarrassed look returned to his face. No, no, of course not. It's just that, um, the diplomats assumed you, you were going to teleport them onto your ship. And when that didn't happen, they realized they needed me to shutten them in. But I'm not cleared for diplomatic talks, so, um, I was left waiting. And you were probably stuck here because of me, to keep me company. Sorry about that. Hold on, uh, teleport. You know, deconstruct something to a molecular level. Transmit that data and reconstruct it exactly at another location. You have that technology. No, no, no. We just assumed you did. The invitation for this meeting was something like, prepare yourself for transport. You should have seen the diplomats huddling together in the middle of the station, clasping their briefcases to their chests, awaiting for the deconstruction to molecular levels. It was hilarious. A misunderstanding then. I was a bit disappointed, but it was not the first time when a more backward race, technologically speaking, assumed that our tech could do anything. It was an interesting concept, though. This teleporting by deconstructing to the molecular level should work, at least for simple elements. Something to pitch to the scientists then, but later. Right now, I had a guest to entertain, and I must admit that I found this human and his views on technology to be most interesting. I was already pretty sure that finding out that the humans already know the concepts behind railguns or mayhem weapons is more than what our diplomats are going to find out about human tech in a hundred meetings. So, I decided to find out more. Pilot Jenkins, this diplomatic meeting is scheduled for two of your hours. It would seem wasteful just to stand you. Would you like me to give you the tour of the ship? I swear to the Emperor, it was like asking a child if he wanted some cake. His eyes got wide, and his smile reached from ear to ear. Oh, I would love that. It would be a childhood dream come true. I also smiled. That's a strange way of expressing things. Aren't children supposed to dream of cake and treats and toys? Sure, but right after spaceships. I never knew a kid who did not dream to be in a spaceship, saving the universe and so on. Probably most of them dream about eating sweets in a spaceship. He laughed at his own joke as he joined me on the ship's main corridor. I was about to point out that they arrived here in a spaceship, but stopped myself. After all, the shuttle that they arrived in, compared to this battle cruiser, was rather uh, quaint. I think we should start with the recreation hub first, since it's close, on the same level as the meeting room that we just left behind. The human was practically skipping alongside me, his head switching from side to side, trying to take in every detail, and not only looking, but he seemed compelled to touch everything. The light fixtures, the door controls, the air vents. About every few paces, he would let out a whoa, or an awesome. He was so excited and moving so fast that I had trouble keeping up with his pace. So, without thinking too much of it, I activated my suspenser belt in order to be more nimble and not make him wait for me. The human noticed us and froze still for a second. But just for a second. Holy crap, you got a suspenser belt, just like Baron Harkonnen. That's so cool. Before my confused person could react, he had squatted near me, examining the belt. 
gently waving a hand over the suspensers and giggling. Where have you seen a similar device, and who is this barren person? Now this tech was clearly not available on a human world. We would have spotted it rather easy, even from this distance. Something was not right here. Oh, it's just a fictional character. It's from a science fiction book. Basically, someone imagined it. We thought about it, but we don't know how to make it yet. But now, now that we do know that it's possible, our nerds won't give up until they crack this. Man, so, so many applications for this. He was brought out of his examination of my belt by a passing steward, pushing a trolley. Like that cart, he exclaimed, pointing at the thing. Why not replace the wheels with suspensors? I bet you could do the same for freight carts, all the suspending lights, <sighs> levitating tanks. How awesome would that be, huh? To go over any terrain. Flying cars, drones like really silent ones. Hell, make some of these babies big enough that you can probably move a spaceship with them. Oh crap, that's right, it's a miniature ion engine. He stopped when he saw the bewildered expression on my face, and I think he misunderstood my expression. I'm sorry, Captain. I really hope I'm not committing the industrial espionage here, or something like that. If I am out of line, just tell me. No offense will be taken, I promise. If you want to cancel our tour, there is absolutely no problem. And I promise you that I understand. I was not offended or anything. I was just amazed beyond words. This creature, this human, who has never before seen a piece of tech was spewing out possible uses for it, had a rate worthy of a prize-winning scientist. And, besides that, he just correctly identified the principle behind it in less than a few seconds. Do, um, do humans have ion engines? I managed to babble, trying to hide my stupor. I already knew that they didn't, but... I just did not get how someone can see so clearly the concept behind a totally alien tech. Well, uh, not exactly. At least not ones with a decent output. Our ships still use combustion for thrusting. But we do have some experiments going in that direction. And some small ion engines, but just for small directional changes. Again, the fact that we see them functioning on your ships as a main thrusting element will greatly increase confidence in this particular tech, and the study in this area will be greatly increased. And by confidence, I mean funding. He laughed again at his own joke, and then looked expectantly at me. I just pointed in the recreation hub door, trying to buy more time for my brain to process this. That is the recreation area for the crew. Let's go inside to show you how we relax on long voyages. By this point, I was feeling a little frustrated by the way the human nonchalantly regarded our way more advanced technology. With a lot of yeah, we're going to have to do that too soon. It was rather cocky of him. Every other race we've met so far had been awed by our technology, thought of it as uh, magic or even supernatural, even godlike. I knew it was not civilized for my part to think like this, but now I wanted to awe him. So I had decided to show him the holodeck. I was already smirking, when I chose from the available scenarios the one entitled Hunt for the Wild Chukra. Selection completed, I opened the door and stepped inside of the empty, for now, holodeck, with the human in tow. 
I said nothing to the human while the program loaded. Not to ruin the surprise. You see, I really wanted to unnerve him a bit. There was no way that he would not be blown away by the holographic simulation. Maybe even scared. I felt a giggle crawling up my throat, watching the human gawk at the walls dotted with projectors. And then, even before the projectors had time to warm up properly, he spoke. Whoa, this is a holodeck, right? Like where you simulate different scenarios. You guys use hard light. Can you pick up objects here? Are the scenarios and characters fixed? Or are they reactive? Maybe AI controlled? Before I could answer, not that I could have answered anything with my mouth agape, the projectors came to life, and the rocky savannah materialized around us. The hot wind started to blow through our fur, and, uh, hair? Birds jumped all around. Two suns peeked through the clouds from above. The human, grinning wildly instead of cowering in awe, was trying to take it all in. Nice touch with the warm wind. Hey, I can even feel the sun burning. Very realistic. When he managed to gently pick up a stone from the ground without too much glitch and maintain the simulation in his palm, he cackled with glee. Myself, I was over the shock of the human knowing what a holodeck was, even though I was absolutely sure he'd never seen one in his life. But I still had hope for some of the cowering-like reaction. You see, I knew the simulation well, and knew where to look for the approaching chakra. I knew it would be stalking from behind the two bigger boulders. At any minute now, the hapless human would step into his range. If the chakra leaps right at you, even a simulated one, your flight instincts is going to take over, no matter how familiar you are with the holodecks. So I watched, breath held, with some remorse actually as the human moved from item to item, closer and closer to the beast. And then it happened. The chakra leapt with a growl from three meters away, aiming for the human's side. And somehow, the human had time to turn his head towards the simulated beast and see it, and step aside, out of the way. And then, instead of fleeing in panic, he faced the chakra, making, uh, uh, cooing noises? Oh my god! Who's a good kitty? Oh my, you're gorgeous. Nice kitty. Come here. Psst, psst, psst. Come, come, come here. The simulated chukra seemed to share my disbelief. What in the name of the emperor was the human trying to do? Pet it? To his disappointment, the kitty turned away, according to the simulation scenario, and disappeared into the tall grass at a sprint. The human turned to me with bright, moist eyes. Oh my, I don't know what that was, but it was gorgeous. Its fur looks so fine, and the cute face with the whiskers. Oh, I want one. Must admit, really startled me jumping like that, but damn, it was cute. If it startled you, how come you didn't run? Don't humans have survival instincts, or a flight instinct? Um, it's more of a fight or flight instinct for us, actually. He said casually. Fight or flight. Can a species survive with both of these instincts? I mean, uh, if they need a flight instinct, it means there were animals that could kill them, that used to hunt them. In this case, how was the fight instinct eradicated? Individuals with the fight instinct should have been eliminated by predators, right? And uh, 
Wait. Did you find the chakra cute? That is clearly a predator. A real one would probably be able to really hurt you if it catches you unaware. Yeah, I know. I know, but uh, it really was pretty. And on Earth, I'm based in Fort Davies. We got mountain lions all over the place there. And those things are a bit bigger than this. I'm rather used to big cats. They usually leave you alone. If you leave them alone, it's not like they're grizzly bears or something. Oh, sorry. Those are some bigger predators we have on Earth. I can show you how they may look on my phone here. It's connected to my ship's network, so I should be able to find some nice videos with them. Hey, you got some stuff, some scanners for this holodeck to add things to the simulations that are not in your database. If we let the scanner record my phone screen, think we could project this video here. I swear I could feel my translator overheating while trying to keep up with the human's explanations. I was curious about the mentioned predator, so I directed Jenkins towards the wall, where I opened the scanning cubicle. I placed his phone in front of one of the recorders and used the keyboard command to project the image a few meters from us. The projection was only two-dimensional, and it showed a brownish beast lumbering through a river. It did not look more impressive than the chakra. Actually, it looked quite small and slow. No, 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 the, the science is all wrong. Let me see that, said the human, and pushed his face above the console. I watched, abused, as he tried to understand the controls. My smile faded as he delightfully exclaimed, Ah, this must be it. Zoom in, zoom out, yeah. Let's see now, a bit bigger. Bigger, that, that should be about right. I looked up from the console back to the image of the bear and froze. Even in 2D, the video of the enormous predator was frightening. Even the sluggish part went to the abyss. When the grizzly moved its head in a flash to catch out of the air something silvery that flew from the water near him. It then proceeded out of the river with its prey in its huge slobbery jaws. He reached the banks and started tearing the silvery thing apart. By the emperor! That is impressive. Are you sure you didn't zoom in too much? Ah, I think I got the size just about right. Anyway, that's not even the biggest predator on Earth. Over the next 20 minutes, he showed me a polar bear, a saltwater crocodile, and a lion. I had to stop the show, because our time was limited and the duration of the diplomatic meeting. And definitely not, because my legs felt like jelly. Each time he brought up another beast, I barely stopped myself from giving in to my flight instinct. But to be honest, I was more impressed by the way the human was using the console, all by himself. Since the first image, he controlled the display for the whole duration. Not only the size of the projection, he figured out how to isolate and project the animal from his video. He made the projection move through the holodeck while the animal was moving its legs. He adjusted the lighting and colors to match, making the hollow deck take colors from his video background and mash it into the current projection. He seemed to really enjoy discovering all the functions of the console. He did it with such ease that it was eerie. When I suggested to move, he seemed reluctant to part with the device. I must admit that I am truly impressed with the ease that you use that console. It looked as if you'd used something similar before. Hmm, it must be because I'm such a huge gamer. I play all types of computer games. Strategies, RPG, shooters, you name it, I play it. And every game has different controls. 
I swear that some game designers actually try to make controls as weird as possible. It's their way of bringing something new with each game that they put out. So, it's sort of mandatory for a gamer to be good at this type of things. Also, the holodeck's controls were really intuitive. I have a couple of VR simulation games back at a base, but it was very similar. VR! Virtual reality. Pretty similar to the holodeck, but because we like the hard light tech, it's something simpler. I'm pretty sure that holodecks like this will be the next step of VR tech. You know what I don't get? Why keep the controls for the holodeck like that, on a fixed console, when you can project them anywhere inside the projection? Move the controls to air touch the space, I mean, uh, you obviously have the means to do it. That was actually not a bad point. Another thing that I would have to remember, to pass it on to our science team. And then, I had the most brilliant idea of my career. I asked the human what other technologies he would like to see in the remaining time. And just like that, I got a glimpse into the mind of a dreamer. Just one individual, and it had so many ideas. Sure, some were pure fantasy, but others were firmly in the realm of possibility. I am convinced that the entire race of such individuals, with their minds century ahead of their current development, would indeed achieve great things and bring a new golden age of science to the universe. When the diplomatic meeting was over, the two of us had just made it back to the antechamber. The human was absolutely thrilled with the tour. He was delighted to have seen so many of his dreams transplanted into reality. And myself, I was really looking forward to the next meeting with my science team, as I had collected in these two hours a lot of improvement ideas for our existing equipment, and also many more ideas for new devices and technologies. After we all said farewell and the human delegation departed, I invited myself through the captain's authority to the debriefing session that the diplomats were having post-meeting the humans. The Empire's policy towards the humans from now on would be based on the report and recommendations, and I wanted to make sure that the report reflected what I had observed in the two hours. As I suspected, the bureaucrats hadn't really tried to look beyond the surface. Their report painted humanity as polite but a backwards race, with very little to none valuable technologies, extremely low military power, at least space-wise, very few available resources to trade. Overcrowded planet, they saw basically little value in developing relationships with them. I let them finish their discussion and report without interrupting them, and afterwards, with all the authority and severity I could muster, asked them what in the name of the Emperor they were thinking. Then, after I got their attention, I proceeded in telling my shocked audience about my own experience with the human pilot, Jenkins of how many useful ideas he had, how fast he understood concepts beyond human actual development, about the ease and familiarity he showed with all of the tech I exposed him to on the ship, of how close humanity is to developing many technologies on par with ours. As a conclusion, I strongly advised them to reconsider their report, or to request another meeting with the humans if they liked, for clarifications but I informed them that I would send a report of my own directly to the Emperor, strongly suggesting an immediate alliance treaty with the unexpected treasure of a race. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 895 
The Dogs of War, written by Al Sporno. Warmaster Gazak contemplated the tactical display with relief. The last of the canine battleships had been broken apart, its remains streaming into the upper atmosphere of the planet below. A few screening elements continued to fight, even if the canine flagship fell apart. One of these destroyers were outright vaporized by a cluster of nuclear torpedoes. Still, the outcome was no longer in doubt, even if the cost had been much greater than anticipated. The canines couldn't possibly prevent the landing of the Tarkinian troops. His screening elements engaged the remaining canine cruisers and destroyers while his own flagship, the Jinnath, pride of the Tarkinian fleet, settled into an orbit. Landing pods and dropships filled with Tarkinian soldiers streamed forth Jinnath, prepared to capture the canine capital. Gazark barked out orders to the gun crews, lobbing mass driver blasts into the defense bunkers surrounding the cities. Some of them would be sufficiently hardened against any orbital bombardment that wouldn't outright destroy the entire city, which Gazark's superiors desired to capture reasonably intact. But the defenders would be forced to cower underground, and their surface-to-air weapons would be annihilated, permitting an assault force to land. The Gainites, of course, were fearsome warriors in any surface action. Gazan knew, individually superior to any Tark. They were a pack predator race with an intensely violent hierarchy. Reports from the initial scouting actions included hollowbirds of Gainites killing Tark scouts with their jaws alone. This is why the Tarkinians had declared war upon them in the first place. Nobody could long tolerate such a race of neighbors. Getting a sentient in such a manner was the most terrifying crime imaginable. The memory of these vids required viewing for any war master in the canine sector, forced a shudder out of him. Target the outer bunkers first. Establish interdiction zones in the suburbs. When the cruisers have eliminated the remaining orbital opposition, have them deliver their dropships for close-in enemy suppression, Gazak ordered. If they could take the canine capital, the species could be exiled or wiped out, whichever the War Council ultimately preferred. Their industry, technology, and resources, however, could be utilized to pay for the massive expense of the conquest campaign. Yes, Warmaster, Subcommander Kiarg answered promptly. Her claws were briefly unsheathed as she stretched. For a Tarkinian, she was quite a fearsome warrior herself. She had many Judas medallions, evidence of the many others who had fallen so that she might advance. Gazark knew that while he thought of the canines as barbaric predators, many other races in the known space thought of Tarkinians this way for their brutal methods of career advancement. Still, it was rare that an actual death was required. Feigned submission had become far more common in recent centuries. And then, there was the inevitable Tark counterplotting, reluctant obedience, and general fickle behavior. Still, Gazark had hope. As barbaric as the canines were, submission would work upon them. Or if they surrender, even at the very end, the War Council might choose to exile them instead of genocide. That soothed his conscience some. The last enemy cruisers have been destroyed, Warmaster, Giyag reported gleefully, purring as her eyes grew large with gleam and her whiskers twitched in the gesture of contentedness. The destroyers are in full retreat. 
Gazark frowned and looked at the tactical display. The destroyers were out of range and making fast for the edge of the system. That was extremely atypical for the canine forces, which, as a matter of honor, almost always fought to the death. Honor, and most of all, extreme loyalty to the pack members were the hallmarks of the canine race. That's odd, Gazark vocalized. Hypertranslation vector indicates that they're jumping for unknown regions beyond canine space. Georg reported unnecessarily. We'll have to send out trackers. Can't have them settling someplace else and nursing revenge against us. I don't like it, Subcommander. Gazar rubbed his whiskers and flicked his tail with unease. Something is very wrong here. But the problem would have to wait. The Jenneth shuddered as her mass drivers bore down upon the enemy installations. He directed his dropships around the waning enemy anti-fire as his gunners snuffed out each emplacement shortly after it opened fire. A few dropships fell, acceptable losses, he thought, but far more emplacements vanished. Soon, the anti-air failed completely. So much for the vaunted canine warriors, Georg mused, her ears twitching with amusement. Well, we'll have the cities by local sundown at this rate. Be careful, Subcommander. Remember your verses. The prankster frowns upon the hubris and laughs upon the despair of the arrogant. There was only one god in the Tarkinian pantheon, unlike those races who had either abandoned faith altogether or those who had worshipped many gods. Most races who did have deities also had an opposite number, an evil force opposed to the gods. For the Tarkinians, the prankster was both. He was good, and he was occasionally evil whenever it suited his whimsy. Nothing pleased the prankster more than a good joke at someone else's expense. Whether he was good or evil depended greatly on if he were the butt of his jokes that day. Gazar felt the presence of his god now. Somehow, the prankster was watching. Whether the joke was on him or the canines remained to be seen. Well, Master, our armored carriers have reached the suburbs. Advancement has stalled. Groundmaster Pazel has been killed. Pending Groundmaster Hayark has taken command, the comm officer reported. Kayak frowned, looking at the Warmaster for approval. Gazark gestured affirmative. Pazel had been an idiot, appointed to command only because he was unusually large for a Tokinian. He won a lot of jewels by his sheer physical prowess and approached the size of some small canines. But such did not always translate into command ability. The prankster must have thought it very amusing when he gave Pazal, one of the most brutal Tarkinians to ever have drawn breath, such a mediocre intellect. Kayag hissed with displeasure and directed her attention to the tactical display. Help the advance! Park targets of enemy concentration! Incoming orbital precision strikes! The Jinnath's armament was too indiscriminate for such work. She was meant to level bunkers, suppress forts, destroy cities, and annihilate orbital forces. But her escorts had smaller and more precise weapons. They were surgical strike vessels as much as screening ships. The subcommand worked her subordinates perfectly. Coordinating such strikes was extraordinarily difficult if you didn't want to reduce your own troops to canned biopaste. 
Gazak turned his attention back to the hyper-exit vectors of the canine fleet survivors. There was something disturbing about it, he decided. The war had seen canine forces match and sometimes exceed Tarkinian technology, but they were woefully underpopulated. It was almost like they weren't native to their own homeworld. Throughout the campaign, he had wondered about that. The War Council suggested that the canines were probably killing each other in droves, at least until the war. But Gazak had fought them for months and seen no evidence of this. Indeed, all evidence suggested that canines would die in job lots to rescue their packmates. Their loyalty had, in some ways, been their downfall. It made them predictable. It made tactics of kidnapping and imprisonment effective in drawing canines out of position. The prankster was on the edge of his awareness. He had only a dim perception of laughter. A faint sense of the joke was on him. Suburban concentrations eliminated, but we've got a house-to-house fighting down there. Ending Groundmaster Hayak reported through the comms, his face registering weariness through the holo display. We've lost a lot of talks, and I think there are many more enemy concentrations deep within the bunker network. We'll have to keep them from hitting us from behind. Watch our backside, Jinnath. We are approaching the downtown district. Residence is heavy. I'm down to 50% combat capability. Gazar gestured in the affirmative imperative. Incoming hyperspace vector, Kayak screamed above the pending Groundmaster's report. Multiple ships, Dreadnought class, and the destroyers who fled earlier are with them. What? Gazak demanded. The laughter in his mind rose to fever pitch. Are the newcomers canine reinforcements? Configurations are completely different, Kayak reported mechanically, focusing on her work and pushing down her fear and surprise. Among subcommanders, she was the best. But drive signatures and atmosphere composition is the same. It's unmistakable. I don't understand. He studied the data, boring into the tactical display. The newcomers far outclassed the Jinnath in every available metric the computer could identify. Their mass driver power ratings were off the charts, and they maneuvered as adeptly as destroyers, despite their immense bulk. Clearly, the newcomers had a superior inertial controllers. And they were fast. They would be in range within minutes, even from the hyperpoint. Max Burn, get us out of orbit, now! Load missile bays for enemy contact and get our screen back into position! Gazar was surprised at how measured his voice was, given the terrifying surprise. Hayark was still on the line, his face falling into the traditional imperative pleading. Oh, master, without orbital support to suppress the bunkers, we'll be overrun. Yes, Gazak answered, his tone measured gesturing to the regrettable imperative. That can't be helped now. Do as you must. Missiles loaded, Warmaster, Kiyag replied, her voice ashen. Nobody was under any illusions that they could hope to stop the newcomers. The Hollywood booked and the sound of the incoming hypercom transmission. Display, he ordered the computer. An alien face filled the screen. One, Kazak noted, that was very unlike that of a canine. If their ships appeared more fearsome, their visage seemed almost soft. Gazak knew better than to judge them thusly, however. The prankster often enjoyed putting dangerous things into soft packages. I am Admiral Eric McIntyre of the Terran Confederacy. 
You will heave to, power down, and surrender all forces, both planet side and in system, pending negotiated peace with the Tarkinian Republic. He spoke the language of the canines fluently. The enemy commander, Gazak noted, was not wasting any time. He froze the hypercom for a moment and looked at Georg. Her whiskers twitched in a negative imperative, confirming his own thoughts. There was no fighting them, and the hyperpoint was too distant. They could not outrun the enemies. He unfroze the comms. Our war is not with you. Whoever you are, Gazak spoke in a passable canine. This is not your fight. On the contrary, the Admiral corrected. This is very much our fight. Why, you are not canine, Kazak pleaded. The Admiral laughed. You really don't get it, do you? The enemy commander rose up to his full height, and even in the hypercom hollowbird, he's absolutely towered over the Tarks. Gazak finally got a sense of scale for the aliens, and they were huge, more than twice as tall as even the brute like Pazel had been, and at least three times as tall as Gazak himself. And given that the canines also generally preferred four-legged locomotion, the newcomers must tower over them too. I don't understand, Gazak offered, trying to talk his way out of the situation. Many years ago, the Admiral explained, we uplifted the dogs, gave them intellect, opposable digits, though damn them for still walking around on all fours. What? Why? Gazak had heard of such things only in ancient fictional accounts. No race created competitors to itself. Well, we loved them, you see. Uh, they were pets once. But even then, they were more like family. They were our closest companions since before the dawn of our civilization. Now, well, if you want to kill them, you'll have to go through us. The canines were your pets. Gazar just about fell out of the chair. The war had been a near thing. He had personally watched the canines destroy half of his battle group over the course of the conflict, and they were the creature's pets. What kind of insane death world warrior race were these Terrans that they could keep such creatures as pets? He felt the laughter of the prankster all around him. This was his best and his most horrifying joke yet. But, but, but they kill our scouts with their jaws, Gazar protested. The Terran pondered this. Yes, they did do that. They told us of this. They were very embarrassed about it, but, uh, you see, that was an accident. An accident? Yes, uh, you look awfully like kitty cats, an animal from our world, you know. An instinct is instinct. You didn't announce yourselves before coming to their world. Unfortunate for you, I suppose. But I'm told your god finds these things funny, the Admiral continued. Either way, it'll not go well for you if you do not surrender. The dogs only summon us in the most dire of situations, and from appearances, it looks like we got here just in time. Do you know what we do to people who abuse our dogs? The Terran glared at the hollow emitter, and the war master shivered with fear. There was murder in the alien's eyes. That much was unmistakable. Gazark certainly didn't want to find out. He surrendered. The prankster's howling laughter echoed in his mind. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 896. Story number one. Every HUFI story ever. Written by Scottson.
a few million miles away from a pale blue marble, alien powers bickered. We exterminate them, Kalitakutsatuf screamed, his chitin first cracking the table ever so slightly. His massive armored frame dominated the room. Yes, the amphibious Pasha replied with a nod. Otherwise, they'll infest the entire area. The Harakani delegate rolled his eyes. Good. We've settled what to do about the space ruts in the mess hall. It only took ten hours. Now, what do we do about the humans? Kali Tukwitsadivziv glanced at Earth floating in the black void, then looked at the assembled council with a shrug. Dunno, blow it up. The ship's AI suddenly butted into the conversation, its voice flat and hollow. That course of action is not recommended. After some jeers and cries of why not, the AI brought up a holographic display in the middle of the room and explained. Simulations predict that catastrophic damage to Earth would not kill the humans, and would in fact only antagonize them. Kali Tukutsadifzev slammed his fist on the table again. The table cracked further, but Kali Tukutsadifzev's exoskeleton suffered far more damage splitting and shattering open to reveal the soft flesh underneath. He nonchalantly ripped it off, silently cursing himself when he remembered his species couldn't regenerate limbs. Please explain to me exactly how they wouldn't die from an asteroid being dropped in them. Pasha raised her hand. I thought we were going to glass it. Another delegate raised her voice. What? We all agreed an old-fashioned invasion. The crowd quickly devolved into chaos and argument. We are gonna use a virus bomb. Throw it into the sun, duh. You're all idiots. We banished them there from the first place so it would kill them. No, we didn't. Yes, we did. Pasha had enough and screamed, Enough! The assembled aliens silenced themselves and turned to the serene delegate. We'll just do a combo of all of those things, huh? Besides, they're still in the Stone Age. They won't be able to stop us anyway. That is unlikely, the eye said. Why? Turn around. Basha complied and whipped back only to see the significantly different Earth. Much of its greenery had shrunk and countless points of light hovered around the planet in a pale white shimmer. That's impossible, Pasha cried. We had our backs turned for literally like two minutes. This complicates things, Kali Tukwitsadivzivs mumbled, but then his eyes brightened as he snapped one of his claws. I got it! We'll drop two asteroids on them! Pasha pinched her brow and spoke. No! Look, I know a few cosmic horrors and renegade AIs that owe me some favors. I'll call them and we'll get this all sorted out. Also, will not work, the AI replied, before Pasha could ask why. Life feeds were brought up around the galaxy. The Iron Cloud's computational matrix was cold and unknowing, its drones lying still in the cold darkness of space. The biohorde was black and crisp, its brain spilled over the continents of Mars. The seven horrors were gone, only bits of corrupt flesh floating at the edges of the galaxy. And none could find words to describe what happened to the lurking one. Pasha's mouth rattled agape. How? The AI responded by zooming in on one of the Iron Cloud city-sized drones to show a small group of humans dancing on it, shooting guns in the air and making generally lewd gestures. 
Well, you were all arguing, the AI said. The humans have been having fun. Kali took quick sedatives of through his limbs up. That's it, he stated. AI, order the fleets to begin cleansing of humans. The AI replied, of course. I will direct the first and second fleets to the nearest staging areas, and I will also sniff myself because I am a butt and I love smelling farts. Kali took quick sedatives of segmented jaw dropped. Uh-huh. One of the navigators raised his voice. Sir, the AI has been hacked by the humans. They turned all the AI's data into pictures of skulls. At that moment, a small furry alien made its way into the center of the meeting room, carrying a large staff and covered in tribal paint. Its squeaky voice almost too much to stand. I warned you all, it spat while circling the place, pointing an accusatory finger at the assembled crowd. But none of you listened. You cannot kill them. You can only plead for your lives. None are safe from the violent ones. The what? Pasha blurted. His species worships the humans. That's what they call them. Kali Tukwitsidavziv answered. Fool! Another squeaky voice shouted from the opposite side of the room. An equally small and adorable alien appeared, wearing garments similar to the first. The Ascended shall bring about an era of galactic peace. You spread heresy. The two small rodent-like aliens ran into each other and began to tussle, each screaming litanies and curses at one another. Every few seconds, another alien would join the brawl, hoping to appease the gods or the high or the warlords or whatever other colorful names they associated to the humans. Kali Tukwitsidavziv turned away from the madness and looked out the window to see Earth had changed again. The small shoal of ships around the planet had become a near blanket, and Luna's dark side showed a crisscross of massive settlements as well. He turned back. Everyone was wearing human clothes, blue jeans, and several humans were now in the room and shooting their machine guns around randomly. And above it all, horrible human music whined over the loudspeakers. Pasha lowered her oversized sunglasses. Hey man, these humans are pretty cool. Their culture is like, um, infectious, you know. Kali took quick of gasped, then looked down. He was wearing blue jeans. In a panic, he pushed himself away from the council and into the control room, where all the technicians were also wearing blue jeans. He looked up. Blue jeans grafted him to the bulkhead. Back down. He was now wearing a blue jean jacket. But no other choice. He slammed the airlock release button in an instant and was vented out into space. But instead of being greeted by the welcoming embrace of cold death, he saw only a patchy blue. He opened his mouth to scream. There was no air. No nothing. Only blue jeans. End of story. Story number two. Fear. Written by Muricon. But, uh, why are humans so scared of us? Are you fucking kidding me? Look at yourselves, bloody giant snakes. You could literally crush us and eat us alive. And we know it. What sane being wouldn't be scared of that? But why? We've never done anything like that to you. It doesn't matter. You're a giant snake. And that means danger with capital letters. Oh, don't look at me like that. You look like you're about to eat me when you do that. 
It isn't a conscious thing, like if you see someone shooting up a place and you get the idea that you desperately need to be elsewhere. It is a primal lizard part of our brains that are all fight or flight. But humans cannot fly. It means run the fuck away in this case. And this is an instinctual behavior. Yeah, it is. Every human has it. Some can ignore it, and some have it more finely honed than others. But yeah, we all got it. We are constantly evaluating potential threats at a subconscious level. For what purpose does it serve? You are apex predators on your planet. Why should you be so afraid? Because we aren't. But we aren't apex predators. We're near the top, sure. But that is only on a flat, open land. You get into mountains, or jungles, or oceans, and we're not apex, even today. Which is why most humans don't go there. And if we do, it is usually to places with lots of other humans. And we don't go outside certain safe areas. The ones who go off on their own, they're constantly afraid, constantly checking to make sure something isn't about to kill them. That makes no sense. How could a species survive with such fear? We survive because of fear. There are insects smaller than my hand that will kill a human dead with a single bite. There are animals that can and do hunt and kill humans when they wander out into the native habitats. There are diseases that will cause you to die in all sorts of horrible ways. And then there are all the dangers of other humans. But uh, you have conquered all of those things, created poisons, hunted creatures, and made vaccines. Yeah, and that tells you something about humans, fight or flight. Sometimes being scared means running away, and sometimes it means you step out of the house, block all exits, and pump it full of poison to make sure that any bugs inside are thoroughly and completely dead. Sometimes it means getting off predators until the only reason they aren't extinct is because we put them in preserves, away from people, where we don't have to think about them existing. Sometimes fear means that we come up with phrases like, Nuke it from orbit! It's the only way we can be sure. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 897. Economics, written by I.S. Physically, the Saproids are not an impressive race. Skinny little guys. Most races refer to them as the little gray people. But they are really smart. Proportional to their bodies, their craniums and their brains are the largest among sentient races. And they're also cunning and greedy and ruthless. You could be at war with them and not even know it. Because they don't wage wars with ships and guns and troops. Oh no. They wage economic wars. Because they are trade masters. They are present on any stock market around the universe. They have their greedy little balls in every bank, in every vault. Why? Because nobody can multiply currency like a smart little bastards can. As a result of their intimate knowledge regarding the economics of the universe... They can crash any economy of anyone who they deem as a threat to them and their lifestyle. When humans finally discovered FTL, they were welcomed to the universe. 
They met all other sentient races. Trade deals were made, technologies were exchanged, shipping lanes were being established. Everyone was admiring this race of industrious, peace-loving, hard-working people. Everyone liked them, and the humans seemed to like everyone too. Everyone except the Saproids. For some reason, undisclosed by their diplomacy, the humans were rather cold and cautious towards the little grey men. It's not that they refused contact or trade deals with them, or refused to grant them visiting visas to Earth. It's just that, unlike with the other races, the humans didn't seem to trust them. Like, at all. Every saproid that visited Earth was accompanied by guards at all times. No access was given to more important human technologies or real access to human stock markets. Nobody really knew the reason for this apprehension from the human's part. But soon, all over the universe, when someone was being mad or frustrated at the saproids, began referring to them as anal probers and cow snatchers. These were terms that started from unofficial human sources. Of course, the behavior didn't go unnoticed by the saproids, nor would it be left unpunished. In great secret, the probers, pardon me, the Saproids assembled their war council, their greatest minds in the field of economics met to discuss a strategy to bring these upstarts at the Saproids' mercy. Like I said before, the Saproids didn't believe in standard warfare. Ours were animals, for mindless brutes as far as they were concerned. No, their field of battle was economy, and their weapon was currency. But their access to human economy was basically inexistent, so their usual methods wouldn't be efficient against the humans. In order to find a winning strategy, more data was needed. So a couple of Saproid generals were sent to Earth to gather more information. They pretended to be tourists, willing to visit an exotic planet. The Human Bureau for Xeno Affairs accepted the tourist visa requests. It recommended them a few popular tourist resorts. Because the Saproids couldn't endure colder climates, the destinations were countries in the warmer climates of Earth, like Thailand, Philippines, Malaysia, Haiti, Barbados. India was off-limits for some reason. Apparently for the safety of the cow statues, oops, sorry, pardon me, the Saproids. Accommodations were made for them, tickets were bought, guides were booked, and, of course, Guards had been assigned for their protection, according to the humans. After a few days of quarantine, some vaccines, and other such formalities, the generals found themselves on Earth, among the humans, and began their observation and data gathering. The natural beauty of the land left them unmoved. The exotic fauna mostly scared them. The exotic foods, fruits, vegetables were of no interest some of it were borderline poisonous. Sport activities, such as diving, climbing, hiking, and so on, were just irrelevant to them. No, they looked for weaknesses in the economy. They watched how money changed hands. They analyzed what did the humans spend their currency on. They watched, they asked questions, they gathered data. Spreadsheets were made, graphs created, PowerPoint presentations, the works. A month later, the generals returned to their home planet, and the War Council gathered once more. 
The first to speak was Senior General Scump, from the prestigious Scump, Scump and Scump Trading Company. The General stepped up to the podium with confidence. He looked very imposing, with two assistants wallowing him, displaying his very long achievement scroll. The General also looked quite refreshed by his time behind enemy lines, and one could even see a faint tan on his grey skin. Gentlemen, he began his speech, on my time on the anime planet, I learned a lot of things about the humans. I studied them carefully, and I think I found an ingenious method to strip them of their currency, to bleed them dry. Not only to make them poor, but to make them direct their money only into our accounts and to no other race. Every member of the council was on the edge of their seat. Their greedy eyes shone with excitement. Little grubby paws were being rubbed together. Some began to drool uncontrollably. Some of them were even hiding erections behind clipboards placed onto their laps. General Scump smiled at their excitement and began to explain his strategy. After I visited several vacation destinations amongst the humans, I observed the following... 1. The humans work almost all year, gathering currency like any other normal sapient. But instead of using the gathered currency to invest and multiply it, they spend a huge portion of their gathered money only on a single month of vacation. It is a crazy period in their life that happens every year, when they just uh, spend they prefer to spend it on traveling to new places, as different as possible from their standard place of living. They spend it on trying new things, new foods, new experiences, and new mating patterns. Number two. When humans reach a certain age, they retire from activity. They stop working and they don't make money anymore. But the government pays them money each month. A fair percent of these old humans, when reaching the stage, prefer to move to warmer climates, where they spend their days taking money from their governments and spending them. Usually spending the money is explained on point one of my presentation. 3. The main source of income for those popular vacation sites I visited was the money spent shown above. The entire economy of those places depend on the money that they extract from the tourists. Gentlemen, continued the general, I have seen tourism in the universe, but I have never seen an economy so dependent on it. Nor have I met a race so ready to spend money on such frivolous things. So, after analyzing all of these things, I propose the following course of action. 1. We build tourist resorts. Herons will come because they love new places and experiences. If you build it, they will come. They will come with their money and leave without them. We will make them pay for these results. Not only will they leave their money here, but we will also bankrupt Earth's tourist destinations. After all, they can't offer us much new as the alien planet. Number 2. I am aware that the humans don't trust us and don't like us. They call us anal probers and cow snatchers. They won't visit Saproid resorts, so we build them on other worlds. There are plenty of races that will welcome us investing in their planets. 
We just make sure that no staff is saproid, and the humans don't know it's our resorts, and they will happily spend their income in those places. 3. We establish a charter flights between Earth and our newly built resorts. The Terrans will pay us to come here and give us their money. Also, this would mean less tourists and less income for transport companies on Earth. Again, a serious blow to the local economy. And last, we will attract the elderly humans. We sell them houses and land in warm climates. Like all humans, they crave new experiences. So they'll move to these places. Not temporary, but they will stay there until they expire. All the time sucking money from Earth and spending it on the planets we attract them to. Again, I am aware that they will not come to our planet. Instead, we must attract them to planets that are under unofficial control, so we can benefit from the steady credit flow that will be coming from Earth towards the elderly. Thank you for your attention, gentlemen. I am looking forward to your opinions, and to the plans that my fellow generals have devised. The other generals that visited Earth also presented their plans and observations, but applying all the plans at once was avoided for three reasons. First, too many plans at once might alert the humans that they were under attack. Second, each of these plans required money, and there was only so much resources the Saproids were willing to risk. And third, they wanted not to push the storyteller right here too much right now, and to leave some room for a potential follow-up. The council members voted, and with a majority of votes chose General Scum's plan as the starting offensive against the humans. They started going over details, calculating return of investment rates, choosing suitable locations, squabbling over who gets to invest where and on what. But they were professionals. Slowly, the things were set into motion, and the silent war began, without the humans ever realizing that they were under attack. In less than a year, ten huge resorts with hundreds of hotels and ten different planets were ready to receive their uh, mostly human guests. Transport lines were established between these resorts, Earth, and even Earth's colonies. Clips appeared on the human internet promoting these resorts. Also, at the same time, amazing offers appeared, dedicated to the elderly humans for houses and land on warm, beautiful, exotic planets. For the humans that chose to move to these planets, they even offered free transport. The plan was in motion, and it was flawlessly executed. Results soon became visible. Humans, after being confined to their own worlds for the entire existence, flocked to these new results with a great enthusiasm. Old people, were happy to get away from the crowded, polluted Earth and settled on warm, new planets. The number of tourists and elderly surpassed even the most optimistic predictions of the Samproids. Money was starting to flow steadily from the direction of Earth into the pockets of the Yena Provers. The Council calculated that at this rate, in ten years, humans would spend enough money outside their system that they would enter a recession. Mike Laurie was one of the guides that had been hired to babysit the delegation of cow snatchers. He had never before met real-life aliens, 
but he was rather disappointed. He tried his best to entertain them, but the boring, cheap, non-tipping grey little bastards were not interested in anything fun. They just watched, observed, took notes at some point. Mike thought that they were into voyeurism, but nope, they just didn't know how to have fun. So, when he was assigned to another delegation from another species, he had a very low expectations. He almost refused the job, but uh, his professional pride won. He vowed to himself that this delegation was going to have fun like never before. So, he did everything with them. Took them to shows, concerts, magic shows, cabaret. Took them on trips like safari, hiking. Took them onto the sea for swimming, snorkeling, diving. Took them skydiving. Took them to fancy restaurants to enjoy a wide variety of cuisine. The works. At first, the new aliens were just as boring as the saproids. Like they were scared to do anything of the new activities. Why do you humans do these things this vacation? Asked the leader of the delegation. Seems like a waste of resources. So Mike explained to them that humans need to take time off the usual work in order to recharge. A human without relaxation from time to time becomes much less productive. And he told them that he was willing to bet that the entire delegation would feel much more efficient after a week under his supervision. The aliens agreed to follow his lead and, after only a few hours, they relaxed and started having the time of their lives. At the end of one full week, the aliens were energized, happy, relaxed, and felt ready to return to their mundane task with more vigor. Well, at least until their next vacation. And so, things went with the next delegation, and the next, and the next. Word spread and soon there was a growing stream of alien tourists on Earth. At some point, resorts dedicated to human tourists opened on other planets. Most humans that accord a vacation went to space. That took some pressure off Earth's overcrowded resorts and made room for the ever-growing mass of alien tourists. Josh Brenner was amongst the first people to visit the tourist resorts built for humans on alien worlds. He enjoyed his vacation immensely. He liked it so much that he visited three of the mega-resorts in less than a year. It was like visiting places from the movies he watched as a little kid. Like entering the universe of Star Wars. So many other races, such wonderful and exotic sceneries, and so many strange foods. However, he did notice a few unexpected things. Apparently, most alien races didn't usually take vacations like humans did. All the destinations he visited were obviously new and designed for humans. And even if they were designed for humans, you could easily see the lack of experience in tourism the designers of these places had. Sure, there were hotels, and each hotel and restaurants, but there was a serious lack of other tourist attractions, like organized activity, diving in those purple seas, safari excursions to observe the strange fauna, bird watching, skydiving. Nothing like that. Not even a souvenir shop. Nothing like that. So Josh Brenner did what any businessman does when he smells an opportunity. He invested. He started rather small, bought a building near one of the tourist resorts, transformed it into a hotel. But unlike the resort, he made it suitable for as many species as he could. After that, 
he convinced his family and friends to invest too. They built a restaurant, opened a souvenir shop, opened an agency that organized all sorts of activities in order for the visitors to enjoy all experiences the alien planet had to offer. And most important, they promoted this type of tourism to all the other known sentient races. Even if other races were not used to this type of spending time, it was impossible not to enjoy yourself if humans were organizing your vacation. Soon, it was known throughout the galaxy that if you wanted to have fun, you turned to the humans. Josh Brenner and his friends were just the first humans to do this, but they were not alone. Soon the mega resorts built for the humans were old news. Human-built resorts were attracting more tourists from all over the universe. A brand new market opened by the Sapoids, but because of their experience in tourism, the humans were the experts on this new market. Walt Kowalski was sitting on his porch, sipping his beer, enjoying the warm evening and the view of the spectacularly first sunset of the day. The planet Calidnia had two suns that rotated around each other. The sunset was something else, like watching two mythological creatures fighting over the rule of the heavens. It wasn't really a sunset. As one sun disappeared under the horizon, the second sun was coming up. This first sunset actually marked the middle of the day. Ha! <laughs> I'm cheating death, snorted Walt to himself. I'm doubling the number of sunsets I'm going to see before I die. <laughs> but a sweet humor. But that's the humor of an old man. He had moved to Kalatnia six months ago, as soon as offers for new homes on alien planets began to appear on the internet. One last adventure, he had thought to himself when he brought this place. Best decision he ever made. The weather was always perfect. The house was cheap, but very spacious and comfortable. The local race was friendly. They looked like Ewoks, but less hairy. Man, I love this view, he sighed, as the second son won the battle and climbed up into the pink sky. Just then, his communicator beeped. Yeah, answered Walt, and took another sip of his beer. Mr. Kowalski asked a high-pitched voice, sounding suspiciously like one of them anal probers. This is he. My name is Rajesh from Zerop Utilities. I'm going to ask you when we can schedule a replacement of the utilities in your home. Huh? A confused Walt asked. All right, I forgot that you are new to our planet. You see, sir, on Calidnia, our company, Zerop Utilities, replaces your water pump, air filter, air conditioner, washing machine, and refrigerator every year. We call this preventative maintenance, and this way we make sure your equipment does not break too often. Oh, uh, you do this for free every year. What? No, sir. You'll be billed, of course. Uh, like hell, I will. Nothing wrong with my stuff. Nothing broke yet. When something breaks, I'll fix it myself. If I can't, only then will I buy a new one. Mm hmm you can't do that. Rajesh shimmed at a loss for words. Listen here, kid. Are these equipments my property? Well, yes, sir, of course. Then if you want to tell me what I can and can't do with my own property, you're gonna have to come here and tell me personally. And uh, my rifle. No answer came from the other side of the line. Just a gulp. 
That's what I thought. Now, fuck off and don't call this number again. About a week later, his water pump broke. Walt grabbed his toolbox and opened it. It was only one condenser that burned itself. But that started a whole contraption. It was rather standard, but cheaply made flimsy. He replaced it in two minutes. But for the pump to break just as the company was trying to sell him a new one seemed like too big of a coincidence. So he checked all the stuff around his house, the fridge, the air filter, the washing machines, everything. All of them were decently built, but had some cheap condensers or cheap fuses or cables too thin, like they were all meant to last only a few months. He went online and ordered himself a box of honest earth-built condensers, fuses and whatnot, just to have some spares. Xenos might replace their entire machine when it stopped working, but to him, that was wasteful. About a month later, he was at a neighbor's house at a party. They were a nice clan of Ewoks, happy, cute, and man, they were funny after a few beers. Everyone was telling stories, jokes, they were all laughing. Malt was telling them about how he scared Rajesh Silly over the phone, to the amusement of the whole party. Wait, 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 said Blink, the son of the neighbor. You mean to tell us you fix all this stuff by yourself? Yeah, dude, it's not even that complicated. They're simple machines, really easy to fix. And if you mess up, so what? They were gonna sell you a new one anyway. Well, uh, I wouldn't mind not buying new stuff every year, said Blinkstad. It's sucking me dry. If I wouldn't have had to replace them, maybe we could afford one of those vacations I keep hearing about. Well, um, think you could show Blink here how to fix them? Sure thing, buddy, if he wants to. I don't know, said Blink. My friends will probably laugh at me, saying I'm into old man stuff. Walt thought for a second and then asked, You kids have a social network, right? And the kid with the most interesting posts and the most likes and shares is the most popular, right? Well, yeah. Kid, I'll teach you how to fix them things, and you can post tutorials online for each type of fix. You're going to save your people so much money that your channel is going to be the most popular on this planet. You're going to get so much tail, and you're not going to have any energy left to fix things, laughed Walt. Tail? I don't know what you mean. Never mind that. It's the beer talking, so, um, you in? Yeah, uh, okay. Not sure if you're right about the popular part, but... I would really like for us to save money to go on a vacation. Great! Then it's settled, man. I'm going to enjoy sticking to that Zerub Utilities Company. You know, I have a suspicion that company is run by those anal probe jerks. You know, that my granddaddy was abducted by those jerks. And so, the storytelling part of the party continued. In the following months, Radio Shack received thousands of orders from Planet Kalidnia. And the orders kept growing in number and in numbers of articles. The sales of new water pumps, air filters, boilers, washing machines, refrigerators, and other household equipment plummeted. And Blink's channel became the most popular channel on the planet. The situation on Kalidnia was not singular. Every planet where old humans moved at one point or another, similar events developed. The humans refused to replace equipment regularly. If the machines broke down, they just fixed them and then they showed their neighbors how to fix them, and so on, until spare parts stores from Earth were forced to open branches and depots on alien planets to cope with the demand. Four years after the Saproids started their silent war against the humans, 
Their expensive vault results were now shadowed by the human ones and were barely making any profit. All the planets where old humans had moved and where on the saproids had booming companies like Xerop Utilities were now reporting massive losses. The Saproid Council held elections and removed the generals responsible for this debacle from the leadership. End of story. And that, my friends, ends this weekly roundup for Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. If you wish to support the channel, there are ways listed down below, as well as links to the original stories and timestamps in the description. And until next week, I hope that you have a fantastic time. Cheers.